Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 10th, 2021, starting at 9.07 a.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 295th episode of the show. Today, I'm going to be talking with Ali Alumi about the uh, 9th century queen, Baran, who was an astrologer who practiced astrology and is one of the earliest women that we know of whose, re- whose name is recorded in history to have practiced astrology. Uh, so, hey, Ali, how's it going? Hello, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. I've been following you on on Twitter for a while now and really appreciating your work. So you are um, a scholar and a historian of the Middle East and Islam, and you focus in particular on esotericism, on politics, and on astrology and other related things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always have to apologize whenever someone says that they follow me on Twitter. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Please don't do that. <laughs> well, there's. I think there's a lot now. There's like fifty thousand people you have to apologize to. So you, I do. you've got some work cut those, out for you. Those poor, poor people. Yeah. Uh, well, I've appreciated your threads. You um, have done a lot of interesting work on astrology, and I know one of your threads was on Baran and different mm-hmm. um, medieval Islamic rulers and their interactions with and use of astrology and a lot of interesting things from that time period around the eighth and ninth and tenth centuries, give or take. Um, but you've also done a lot of work on um, on jinn or spirits, spirits mm-hmm. or what used to be called, I guess, in the Greco-Roman tradition, like the daimon, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the daimon is probably the best uh, associated spirit or the best connection we can make to them. Okay. Um, and you are the host of the Head on History podcast, which um, is available at headonhistory.com, I believe, but you primarily release episodes through Patreon now at patreon.com slash headonhistory, right? Yep, and the the free episodes are all available on the podcast app and Stitcher and all sorts of apps. Brilliant. Okay, so that and that covers posts on gin and magic and and astrology. Yep. Cool. Uh, and what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is a a o l o m i. Brilliant. All right. Um, so let's go ahead and well, well, first actually a little bit before we jump into that. But what what got you into this, or what got you into this area of study, um, in terms of your your academic work? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I was uh, I've always been interested in the esoteric, and I've always been interested in people's beliefs and the way they make sense of the world. And so I always tell people that I'm a I'm a scholar that studies how Muslims imagine their geography, the monstrous, and the heavens. So kind of all kind of balanced together. Um, but my my interest in medieval Islamic astrology really came uh, when I came across a source, Abu Mashir. Um, I was reading his a fragment of his, Kitab al-Mawlid, and his personality really shines through. Anyone who's done any sort of archival work knows that when you read people's writings, you can start to get a sense of who they are as a person. And Abu Mashir just was boastful, confident, super sarcastic, um, a little bit of a trickster. And I, I, I became fascinated with this tradition that isn't always talked about when we talk about medieval Islamic history, about the early history of astronomy, about the history of astrology, and how it was interwoven into the fabric of their society. And the more I researched and the more I kind of went down this path, I absolutely fell in love with this idea that there's this entire intellectual tradition that is interwoven from the lowest levels of society all the way up to the caliphs. But 
doesn't quite get the attention that it deserves in history texts. And I was like, oh, there's a kind of an open space here for me to to examine. And then I found some of his theories just thoroughly fascinating. What happens when you know a person is born on a particular day, what their horoscope looks like. And they reflected in many ways the contemporary interest to kind of make sense of the world and read our horoscopes. But also they were so vastly different. They were very blunt and very... Um, not not diplomatic in any way, shape, or form. They were not afraid to tell people, by the way, your life might suck. Right. <laughs> and that, that just fascinated me. His, uh, his personality really comes through in his writings, and that's kind of a long love affair between me and this ninth century astrologer. Yeah, Abu Mashar, the the prince of astrologers, who's like one of the most famous medieval and influential medieval astrologers, as well as mm. um, prolific writing like Very a Very prolific, yeah. A lot of text, and that's interesting because you have a unique vantage point and ability to access some of those texts because of your background in Arabic and the ability to read Arabic. Therefore, it's like other people like myself are reading through English translations of some of these texts, and you lose a lot of the nuance and some of the character, I think. Whereas being able to read in the original Arabic, I'm sure a lot more of that is coming through, and um, yeah, and, and is more visible to you than it might be somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. The Arabic. Um Arabic is a difficult language. I've spent my and everyone who ever starts Arabic, I tell them the same thing. I spent my life mastering Arabic, and I still haven't mastered it. It's it's just a very difficult language. It's also a very elusive language, um, and then it's made worse or more difficult by the fact that uh, medieval Islamic manuscripts are intertextual, but they have no concept of citation. There is no footnotes. There are no. Sometimes they may say so according to so and so. Like Dorotheus is very commonly referenced by Abu Mashir, but. In general, they don't. They just kind of assume you already know. So if you're not actually immersed in the manuscript tradition, you end up losing quite a bit. And we, we the same thing happens in the Latin. So don't feel bad in any way, shape, or form. The Latin uh, translators themselves ended up missing so much just because they are very challenging texts. But you know, we're in the 21st century. More translations are coming out. So I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to see a decade of accessibility when it comes to these these texts. Yeah, we're off to a pretty good start so far with the the great translations that have been done over just the past decade or past few decades. Um, and with with Arabic, there's some a uh, little bit of a, a a leg up compared to some of the other older languages like ancient Greek that are are kind of dead languages in modern times. Just because, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like Quranic Arabic, because that's something that's still spoken and, and is relatively close to like modern standard Arabic, right? So that it's it's more accessible to, to modern day Arabic speakers could learn and read texts from the ninth or tenth century a little bit more easily than, for example, somebody that speaks modern Greek is just a completely different language almost to ancient Greek. Yeah, there is there is some accessibility there. Uh, it's more akin to someone who speaks English reading old English. So there's certain languages, there's certain I mean, certain terms, certain concepts that just and even certain spellings that just don't make sense. You do have to immerse yourself in medieval Arabic in order to really understand it. But the average person who reads the Quran can pick up a text and make way through it, especially if they have some type of lexicon or dictionary at hand. They can make their way. And that's just because of the, the impact of the Quran, who sort of standardizes the language and also kind of keeps it in continuity up until you know 21st century. Right. That makes sense. All right, um, so let's jump into our topic today. So part of the background on this is that um, I had done some some work, and I have a small section in my book about 
uh, women in ancient astrology and how women are sometimes mentioned in different texts and whether astrologers, because astrologers did see women as clients. There were men who were astrologers that saw women as clients, and they're sometimes mentioned how to interpret the charts of women and whether they're interpreted the same or or differently in some instances as the charts of men. Um, but there's not really uh, due to like education, uh, not a lot of women that we know of that practiced astrology prior to modern times because women were not generally afforded the same education as men. So I was able to mention like a couple of things from the Greco-Roman tradition of like a sat, sat a piece of satire where they were talking about um, in the first century poet Juvenal who um, sort of mocked the idea of women that saw astrologers so frequently that they eventually became proficient and started practicing it themselves. Uh, or later, there was in the fourth century or fifth century the famous philosopher Hypatia, who was the daughter of a famous astronomer, Theon of Alexandria, and he uh, they may have collaborated on like a commentary of Ptolemy together or something like that, so that because she had some background in astronomy, she might have also had some background or training in astrology. But that was kind of the closest I could get to identifying a woman by name who may have had that sort of uh, familiarity and practice of astrology to some extent, which is really a, a reach. But it's not until we get to the ninth century with Baran that she is the first woman that we know of that, according to a legend that's preserved that survives, may have actually practiced astrology. It seems like so. Um, that's kind of an issue, I guess, the place of women. I know that's something that you focus on to a certain extent in your studies as well, and in terms of the political angle, is just the role of of women in, mm -hmm. um, you know, esotericism and different things and and different topics like that, right? Yeah, and it is an ongoing challenge. I mean, my my entryway into the study of gender and sexuality was actually through an advisor of mine, Professor Philip, who is a brilliant scholar of science in India, um, and. Introduction into feminist historiography, into how to read archives, how to read against the archival grain in order to find women. Because the reality is that women aren't lost in history. They're silenced, by which we mean that the majority of the sources are written by men. And men generally didn't have an interest in writing the stories of women or their participation. And so they, we have to kind of work the sources in unique ways looking for sort of elusive references, looking for kind of mention. So for example, you mentioned how um, the, some of the Greek sources would talk about uh, women going to astrologers to such a degree that they themselves would become astrologers. So a historian would be able to read that and go, okay, that's an indication that women did have astrological knowledge, right? That criticism is an ex that's reading against the ground. Why does the criticism exist? Because women have astrological knowledge, and so they must be critiqued. And so this this is an ongoing challenge. And Part of the challenge is not to just recover one voice here or there, but also to recognize that there may be countless people that just aren't recorded by name. We know that the women participated in intellectual life throughout the ancient world and in the medieval world. Um, and it's the same thing with LGBTQ uh, identities. And then this becomes even further challenging when you come to questions of translation. Translators. So if you already have patriarchal texts, you have societies that are writing these histories that don't include women, 
And then you have translators who then translate those texts who are even more patriarchal. And they're like, oh, what little reference there are to women, let's remove them. And we see this with references to to gay people, intersex people, non-binary people, to women, uh, especially women that aren't from an elite background, just get completely erased in the text. So it is, we're, we're fighting against the current here, but we do what we can. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to do this episode and center it on Baran, because it's something that um, you know, in modern times, the majority of not just um, people that are into astrology tend to be women, but also most of the practitioners at this point are, are women and, and the leaders in the field. So it's interesting that if you go back more than a century, that it shifts so dramatically due to the way that society was set up, you know, prior to modern times. Um, so that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this in order to be able to have that discussion and highlight one of the first figures that we could somewhat reliably say probably really did have some training or some background in astrology partially due to her family and coming from a family family lineage of astrologers um, and that's not entirely unique because there were um, in many different eras different family lineages of astrologers where astrology was kind of passed down uh, as a profession um, from uh, from the parents or from the, the father to oftentimes the son, but also I, I tend to think, you know, the, that uh, ones the daughters of different astrologers would have had exposure to that and and become proficient in some instances and perhaps become astrologers themselves to some extent. I, I tend to think uh, go, going back to those family lineages, for example, in Mes- Mesopotamia or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the family lineages is. The primary way by which knowledge is transmitted to women, though there is formal education as well, particularly in the medieval Islamic period, we know that women studied with scholars and became scholars themselves. And so we have more references in the sort of medieval Islamic period than we have maybe in previous centuries as well as in the later Latin tradition. Um, but that's a, a sort of small, a random sort of change that there is an inclusion of formal education. And there was an indication that even Bauron had some type of formal astrological training. But the primary way that people learned was family traditions, and that stretches back to to Mesopotamia, some way of transmitting knowledge down from grandparents to parents to daughter. Yeah. Um, And so let's see, in in the Hellenistic tradition, we have family lineages like Thrasyllus, the famous astrologer to the emperor Tiberius. Probably had a son named Balbillus who went on to be the sort of head astrologer, court astrologer for the emperors Nero and, and other emperors. And there's also um, Paulus Alexandrinus in the fourth uh, century. He wrote an introduction to astrology and he dedicates it to his son in the beginning and says something about that we have apparently like the second edition of the text because he says that his son complained that. His father hadn't used Ptolemy's like updated ascensional times for the rising sign, so he decided to write a second edition, you know, because his son kind of chided him. And what's funny is that Paulus uses an example chart a couple of times, or two pieces of like half of an example chart in different chapters, and it's for somebody who's only like in their twenties or something like that, which James Holden speculated was probably Paulus's son Chronomon, who he dedicated the work to. So we see. A father kind of embedding his his younger son's chart in his work that he dedicated to him. So lineages, and we'll talk more about lineage in this episode because of Baran being in the middle of of a very long family line of astrologers that stretched over a century or maybe two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The family of Naubacht. 
Right. All right. So um, let's let's get into that then. So so Braun is the first woman we know of by name who's said to have used astrology. I wanted to give a shout out to Kenneth Johnson, the astrologer who wrote wrote a paper uh, on Braun for the NCGR Journal in 2006 titled Braun of Baghdad, an Astrological Woman in the Early Middle Ages. And um, I'll probably post a scan of this actually with the show notes on this episode for the astrologypodcast.com, and I'll I'll get permission from Kenneth for that. Um, just because it was a good early research piece that was kind of formative in Baron's always sort of being there in the back of my mind, but always wanting to research her more. And that's something I tried to do in preparation for this episode. Um so you're actually working on a paper on Baran as well, and had done some research. You'd been doing research into the um, caliphs and their use of astrology over the past several years. Yeah, I'm I'm particularly interested in the role of astrology in sort of political life. But ba- the article on Baran that I've been working on for quite some time now is uh, really to to kind of pinpoint what her astrological knowledge really was. So I take the episode or the story, which we can talk about in a bit. Um, and break it down into what it actually means for historians of astrology and historians of astronomy, what she might have known, what type of education she likely had, what type of skills she had based off of a very small story, which is what we academics do. We take a small reference and then just kind of parse it and break it down. So it's really focused on both her as an individual, but also connecting her to a particular intellectual moment what type of techniques would have been used at the time, what type of knowledge would have been accessible to her, um, and hopefully that'll come out sometime later this year. Fingers crossed academic publishing takes a little bit. Brilliant. Well, I'll definitely link to it in the show notes whenever it does come out in the future and update that um, so people can check it out. So let's let's place Baron. So first, her, her name. Um, what was her name or what do we know about that? So her name is likely Khadija. Bauron is probably a nickname or a title or some type of affectionate way of demonstrating that she was a very important person. But we know that her name was Khadija. Most of the sources from Abu Sa'i and others mention her, even Al-Tabari mention her name is Khadija, um, which was a common name during the time. But it seems like as her reputation sort of grown, she became more and more associated with the name Bauron. Uh, which is linked to an old Sasanian queen, Boran. Um, and so there was a, a way of recognizing her Persian lineage while also uh, bestowing upon her a level of sort of prestige that she is a beloved queen. Right. And she's known just primarily as Boran at this point. Um, Kenneth referred to her as Boran of Baghdad using her place name. Um, you were a little telling me before we started doing this recording. You're a little unsure if that would be an appropriate designation for her. Or maybe not not a great one. Yeah, uh, because the, in Arabic it'll be Al Baghdadi, which uh, is a, would confuse her with another entirely other family. Uh, and there's even like a historian and geographer that's living roughly around the contemporaneous Bauran called Al Baghdadi. Um, it's just that the, in Arabic when you say from or of something. That's usually their name, and this is a common. So even the case of of Bauron, uh, a person may have a given name, but they will be called something entirely different, based off of a skill that they have, based off of where they come from. So historians, for example, Al Baghdadi, that's not his actual name, right? Uh, in the same case with with uh, Bauron, she's known as Khadija. That's her actual given name, but all the sources referred to her 
as Bauran. This is common in Arabic. Sometimes people are known as the mother of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. So Bauran uh, of Baghdad would kind of be two nicknames added on top of one another. I think Queen Bauran is just easy and, and more accurate, or Queen Bauran Khadija, something like that. Okay, got it. Um, so she lived in the ninth century approximately. There's a little bit of iffiness surrounding her her dates, but approximately from about 807 until about 884 CE, right? Mm-hmm. She had a long life. We're not exactly sure of her time of birth and date of birth. Um, unfortunately, a common tendency in, in the biographical details and even the chronology, despite being quite meticulous elsewhere, Birthdays were a little finicky, um, just because you had to have witnesses present. People forgot things. I think anyone who's ever looked up their birth chart and then, you know, based off parents' memory versus their birth certificate can relate to the anxiety of finding out your dates are, are radically different uh, by hours. Well, in the medieval world, it would be by days and sometimes even months would be. Uh, and then there was also a tendency to sort of fabricate dates in order to select a more auspicious birthday. So-and-so was born on this particular day, and that's an indication that they will go on to become a great queen or a mighty king or so-and-so or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Kenneth Johnston went with one of the reports about her being mm-hmm. born on like a Sunday and the date, which is connected with the lunar calendar, which also adds some ambiguity, Yeah, ended up translating to something like December 5th, 807. In sometime in the evening, which he speculated might mean around like let's say 7 p.m. in Baghdad, modern mm-hmm. day Baghdad, Iraq. Um, so we're not sure, and we have to put that sort of proviso in that there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding that, but that's one of the hypothetical dates, roughly either December 5th or December 6th, 807 CE. Uh, just for the sake of like speculation, I wanted to share like a little chart using a modern you know, astrological software mm. program of what that might look like, just roughly speaking, if she was born, you know, on that date or around that time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this has the modern sort of outer planets, but let's take those out for the sake of just doing this episode as a medieval astrologer would. Um, yeah. And I, I actually was more, you know, before we started talking last night and reviewing Kenneth's article was more ambiguous or just it's so highly speculative when you get a, talking about dates from a thousand years ago or what have you, especially when birthdays are not recorded with as much precision as today. Um, but I was actually kind of interested in this chart and in terms of how it connects with some of her biography only because if she was born, let's say, in the evening around, let's say, December 5th um, and had, let's say, cancer rising, this chart would be a Cancer Rising chart with the Moon and Capricorn in the seventh sign or the seventh whole sign house, the place of relationships and marriage and partners. She would have been born after sunset, so with a let's say a day chart with Venus, the benefic of the sect in favor in the seventh house of relationships. Yeah. Um, and then the ruler of the seventh house would be Saturn, which is in the fifth whole sign house in a night chart in the place of children. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, like Jupiter and Libra in the fourth house, 
as the ruler of both the ninth house of religion and learning and astrology and the sixth house um, as well being placed in the fourth. Mm-hmm. So just some interesting little little tidbits that we'll maybe keep in mind as we talk more about her actual biography. And even the uh, ascendant in, in Cancer is a significant uh, Cancer rising or Cancer on the ascendant was the traditional sign of rulers. Cancer was associated with Islamic lands or Muslim lands is one of the signs that they connected to the territories they ruled. So it was not uncommon for uh, rulers of the Islamic world to have cancer rising or cancer ascendant. Okay, interesting. And a quick side note and digression about this, but we had a conversation on Twitter a few months ago where um, I maybe it was you, you that shared a chart or I shared a chart, and I was surprised because it was a chart from like the 12th or 13th century in Arabic, and I was surprised that it was still using whole sign houses or um, divisions of the houses by sign instead of by degree, right. like some of the modern systems like Alcabicius or Placidus or, or what have you. And because in the Western tradition, after the it started shifting after the ninth century so that the divisions by degree, like quadrant houses, started to take over. And that accelerated, especially after the transmission of astrology back to Europe in the 12th century with that translation movement. And you made the comment that you've um, studied at least 30 or more different actual surviving charts, and that from what you can see, that the whole sign house system was the, the primary system in um, Arabic speaking countries and amongst Arabic writing astrologers all the way until like the 18th century or something like that, right? Yeah, um, I, I posted the chart of Ali ibn Abi Talib, um, which was in sign based divisions. The Timur, it's a Mongol chart, if I'm not mistaken, 13th, 14th century or so. But yeah, the sign based division of, of the houses is the predominant house system from the early Islamic period all the way to the 18th century. I, I think I'm entering into some type of cultural war controversy because I always get this question in my DMs, like, what sign, what house sign do they use? So I'm assuming modern astrologers are really like, like fixed on the, on the house systems or there's some type of, but there's no controversy whatsoever if your lens is not Eurocentric. If you're only looking at the European sources, then of course you're going to fall into this Debate, but if you're looking at the medieval Islamic sources, there's absolutely no question that they're using sign-based divisions. Not only are all the horoscopes that we have in sign-based, with some minor exceptions, um, but we have 30 horoscopes from Abu Mashar himself. Abu Mashar literally gives horoscopes, and they're sign-based division. He goes, you know, your rising sign is Pisces, so your money is ruled by Aries. And your your siblings are ruled by Tor- he just goes by one by one. He doesn't say first house, second house. He just talks about the signs, and he gives a clear horoscope entirely based off of a whole sign division. And that remains true up until the 18th century, when we start to see a little bit more sort of European influence in the Ottoman world. Um, that's not to say degrees don't matter. Quadrant base or divisions of this of the houses by degree does exist, but it's predominantly used with specific prognostication techniques. So it's about a predictive tool. Um, we see it particularly through what today would be called distribution through the bounds. Um, when they're doing that technique, they're very interested when it moves from the cusp of one house to the other, so from the first house to the second. And that's an indication of a massive change in a person's life. So that's one of the few times they divide it up by degree. I think and I could be wrong here, but I think the reason why degree-based ends up being so popular in Europe is twofold. One is the increasing 
prestige of mathematics, that the more mathematical precision you have somehow equals more um, you know, accuracy. But the medieval astrologers themselves had a great advanced mathematics, and they didn't see it that way. Um, and secondly, I think it results from a mistranslation of Abu Mesher. What ends up happening in the Latin tradition is that Kitab al-Tawheel, his book on revolutions, is translated first and far more popular than his other books. And it's in his revolutions book, what we call today Solar Returns, I believe, his Kitab al-Tawheel uh, is where he talks about quadrant division. The problem is that you're supposed to read Abu Mashar in order. If you read his Kitab al-Mawled, his book of natal horoscopes, it's all sign-based. But for whatever reason, the Kitab al-Mawled doesn't really get translated, only like sort of certain fragments of it into the Latin. And so there's a fixation on his solar revolution techniques, and therefore a kind of overemphasis on quadrant-based divisions. It's a weird kind of twist of history that it's just a translation issue. Because in the medieval Islamic tradition, if you're reading the sources, from Mashallah to Al-Khayat to even Al-Birun, all of them are using um, whole sign houses, and it remains so up until the 18th century. We have Safavid charts, we have Timurid charts, Mongol charts, and they're all whole sign houses, all of them, with, like again, minor exceptions. Yeah, and I mean, that, from my analysis of the Greek tradition, is pretty much consistent with the Greek tradition as well, yeah. where they're also primarily using the signs as houses, but then they will use quadrant divisions or sometimes equal houses as a secondary overlay yes especially especially for specific techniques like yeah. the length of life treatment where they're doing yeah. primary directions or circumambulations exactly. through the bounds yeah i mean the, the when it comes down to why they did it it's likely because they were trying to remain faithful to the hellenistic tradition the muslim astrologers and the islamic astrologers were very keen on preserving what came before them advancing it, you know, developing it further, but they were very keen on whatever the ancients did. And they very clearly say it, the ancients were wise when they did this. Um, that was the good, that was the good technique. And that's the technique that they wanted to continue. And so it's likely as a result of, of people like Dorotheus and others that they are very keenly aware of like what techniques are being used. They're aware of Valens' techniques as well, and they're very clearly using quadrant when it needs to be. But again, it's only for specific predictive techniques. It's only with particular moments of prediction. The actual natal chart itself is cast in sign-based division, just like the Hellenistic astrologers did. Okay. Um, and one of the things I talked about with Benjamin Dykes in episode 198, when his new translation of Saul Ibn Bishr came out, is that he said there were like different terms that were like six different terms for like a cadent house, and that sometimes they would use special terms for when they were referring to the sign, uh, the whole sign house versus maybe the division by degree. But that a lot of this got collapsed down in the 12th century Latin translations when the European astrologers started translating the Arabic works from Arabic into Latin, and they would just pick one term for referring to a cadent house, and so that may be. Some of what happened is there was a loss of nuance due to that translation movement in like the 12th and 13th centuries. Yeah, it also comes down to the Arabic. So, qisma, uh, division, also means degrees. Mm. Um, and so, I think part of the issue is that they saw one word and didn't realize that Arabic has like 60 meanings for that one word. And so, the contextual component is super crucial for understanding. And again, one of the reasons why you have to read these texts sort of in order, in order to understand them. 
Um, and that, that flattens the differences. So by focusing on qismat, degree, they think degree, degree, degree. But in the Arabic tradition, qisma also just means division, just means the sort of separate, separating the houses. And they do sometimes, in fairness, they also are, they use words interchangeably. Um, and that can be a bit confusing. Um, so for example, um, bite, house, and buruj are almost always used interchangeably. Buruj means zodiac. And bite means house, and they'll just sort of do it. The, you know, they'll use it interchangeably, and they have no issue with it. I think part of the assumption is that these texts, while they're attempting to make astrology accessible, really for the first time to a popular audience, they're also uh, there's an idea that this is a living tradition that you are also going to find a teacher, and the teacher is going to explain those differences to you, and you're going to understand them. Um, we also find that that they use, um, you know, when they use these kind of terms interchangeably, that they're they're emphasizing that, for example, buruj and bite are the same. Right. That that zodiac and house are the same. They're interchangeable. Where you'll see the big difference is in what they tell you how to, you know, in, pick which house it is um, for a particular topic, and they'll tell you a or they'll say hesab count. And or hesab or count or that's an indication that maybe they're working in the sign based for the actual um, how like what a particular house means for what or what particular sign is associated with what particular topic. But then when it comes to a particular technique, like let's say they're trying to do a solar revolution chart, a tahawil chart, then they'll say you want to divide, you want to kisma. And that's where you see the sort of difference between sign-based and division. That gets lost. They just assume qisma means division for everything. And so the instructions here, the nuances are there in the Arabic. And if you're reading them with, with a context, you understand it, and it's very clear. But they get lost. And then I think the modern debate gets shaped by this sort of Eurocentric lens of only looking at the sort of Latin authors or the Latin translation of even the Greek authors um, and kind of forgetting this whole other medieval Islamic tradition, which faithfully reproduces the Hellenistic techniques. I think that would resolve the conflict or the controversy very easily. Once you take a look at those horoscopes, there's no way of looking at them and going, oh no, but this must be quadrant-based because in their head they're doing... No, no, you look at it, you know, that's a sign-based division. They're just assigning each sign to the houses. Yeah, the issue in the Western tradition is just it shifted so dramatically entirely towards quadrant divisions by the time of the Renaissance and, and certainly in the modern period in the past hundred years that the sign-based division in the Western tradition was completely forgotten and just isn't even mentioned in both by practitioners of astrology in the 20th century as well as even some academics. Like There's a great book produced by a scholar in the Warburg Institute in the 80s that was on all the different forms of house division, and he, because he has no idea that whole sign houses is even a concept, says the Greek astrologers don't seem to have used the houses because they're talking about the houses as signs, and so he didn't register that as them using even houses. So there was a big blind spot, I think, of the Western tradition until the work of James Holden and some other recent scholars who's just sort of pointed out that the signs were being used as the houses or places in the Greco-Roman as well as into the medieval Arabic tradition. Yep, yep, absolutely. So here's that thread I just wanted to show it because it has a good illustration of an actual chart. And what was the chart? this chart for again? Yeah, this is for the horoscope of Ali ibn Abi Talib, who is the uh, imam uh, of Shia Islam and the fourth caliph of Sunni Islam. 
And you can see it's a sign-based division. You know, the, they have the name, right? This is a ta'wil, ta'il, this is, means the, the ascendant. Um, and, and the only kind of, uh, connection here is that they're in the, in the fifth house. Um, he has, uh, cancer, uh, saratan, or I mean, his rising is, is saratan. And it's uh, the ascendant which, that yeah, the ascendant is, is right here. This is the uh, Indo-European or the Indo tradition, the Indic tradition of putting it up at the top. We'll see Saul ibn Bishr still uses the ascendant over here on on the left side. But up at the top is the common tradition that will take, you know, from the 12th century on. And this is a 13th, 14th century-ish uh, horoscope. And they'll only list one particular sign, generally the uh, ascendant or one particular house. And the assumption is that you then know what all the other signs are because they're all in the other houses. So they're fixing, the focus here is predominantly on the planets with the indication that the sort of Mars, the, the Mars and Saturn conjunction in the fifth house is an indication that uh, he will have a loss of children. Now this horoscope is sort of projecting backwards. It's written centuries after Ali already died and all the events of his life are, are already uh, there. So you can see here, uh, oh, sorry, it's gone. But in the fifth house, it says Akrab. So that, that is Scorpio is in the fifth house. The, the So this fifth house is where Akrab is. And there's a sort of uh, accompanying text with it where it has Zuhal, which is the uh, Saturn, and has Mirach, which is the which is Mars. So Saturn and Mars, fifth house, his children died. And in the history, quite famously, Ali ibn Abi Talib, his children end up dying or they're martyred in kind of horrific ways at the Battle of Karbala. And so this is one example, but we have, this is the 14th century, but even going back, when you look at, for example, Saul ibn Bishr's uh, horoscopes, they're all done in whole sign houses, even when it comes to Masail, which is the uh, questions or interrogations or um, horary, as it's known today. They're done in sign-based division. He's not used in quadrant in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and that's really fascinating, the early history of horary, because horary really gets its start um, not fully. I mean, we're, we have very little traces of Hori, like in Dorotheus in the first century, that it sort of is starting to percolate a little bit. And then there's some of the first Hori charts exist in the Greek tradition in the from like the fifth century. But it's not until we get to Saul and Theophilus and Masha'Allah in the eighth and ninth centuries that we have some of the first full works on Hori that survive. And and it is very fascinating that they're using Holstein houses in those early works because from the later Western tradition, um, especially in the English-speaking world, people tend to focus on um, William Lilly in the 17th century, who wrote the earliest English text on horary, and he used quadrant divisions. So it's assumed that that's kind of what you're supposed to use is is that approach. But it's interesting then contrasting that with Saul, as you're as you're saying. Yeah, completely sort of different. And, and again, it's just an indication of how. The tradition ends up getting lost in that translation, but also the overemphasis of sort of the European text as the only way to do astrology. I mean, I understand Lily is important for a lot of the English-speaking world, but before there was Lily, there was Mashallah, and Mashallah and Saul were writing about interrogations and horary, and they were using sign-based divisions without any any difficulty. How did speaking of how did you start learning astrology? Did you have some exposure to Western astrology first, or did you come in with Western primers on astrology, or did you, as an academic, did you start more with looking at some of those Arabic texts and the Arabic tradition of astrology? 
Well, I mean, like all everybody, I knew what my sign was, and I knew sure. like a little bit like about the daily horoscopes. But when it came to the modern tradition, I didn't know jack shit. I'm sorry, am I okay. allowed to cuss on this podcast? Uh, no. Fuck yeah! I mean, okay, go, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm notorious for cussing in lectures, and I'm, I'm always very careful not to do it on podcasts or whatnot, to not just yeah. startle delicate ears. But I yeah, mean, I, if there I, is anybody, I apologize ahead of time. Yes, yeah, so I apologize. <laughs> Um, but I, I had no real understanding of contemporary astrology in any way, shape, or form, or any of the sort of weird debates and like like the way that some of these the stuff becomes like highly associated with people's identities and they fight mm. their corners about you know you've got to use one particular you know house system and no the signs mean this particular any any other definition I had no no ideas. In fact, when I entered into sort of Twitter astrology world it was a mm-hmm. weird at first i didn't quite understand all the debates and sometimes things would show up on my and i'm like i don't know what the fuck is going on here right. so i was predominantly about recreating those medieval islamic techniques but as i've recreated them and now i'm i started to look at these debates i can see the traces i can see those particular components of it i've also spoken to contemporary astrologers from the islamic world and so that was part of the this sort of education, speaking to those people and seeing how they still practice it today. Um, there is a living tradition of astrology that does stretch back to mashallah and and these older older texts. It is slightly different. It's not identical to the medieval world. They're using computers now, um, but there is a living tradition. And so speaking to the people who may have had a family line of astrologers stretching back centuries, or who's been doing astrology for ages, who grew up in the tradition of Al Biruni or Abu Masher or whatnot was one way that it was able to kind of help pinpoint what was going on in the text and recreate some of those techniques. But I was not particularly aware of the modern stuff beyond like I knew what my horoscope was and I knew who I was compatible with. And that's kind I, I mean, of I, th- it. I think that's really cool and gives you a really unique perspective on things because then you don't have. Um, preconceptions about what should be the case going into it from a 21st century standpoint, but instead you're kind of maybe more able to sit and read the texts on their own terms and in their own context without too many preconceptions, which is probably an advantage in many ways. I mean, while sometimes there are advantages that contemporary astrologers have in knowing the practice and there being similar dynamics when they go back and look at historical charts and can make interesting observations and inferences as practitioners, it also sometimes can bring baggage that you might be more free of in, and have an interesting perspective on. And that was one of the reasons I was interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I, it was only, I would say, in the past few years, well after I started my academic research, have I learned a little bit more about modern astrology. I had a former a friend, a former paramour who was really into modern astrology and looking up our signs. And, went, and so I read a couple of, of her books um, uh, on astrology. And it was interesting to see some of those connections, but also to see how vastly different it could sometimes be. But it wasn't until I was on, I should say, social media that I've started to see more of the tra- modern traditional astrologers. And so that's been kind of fun, seeing these people recreate techniques or talk about stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, that's Abu Mashir, or, right. oh, that's, that's mashallah. Oh, look, they're, they're using this technique that I've read about in this text from a thousand years ago, but there are people who are still very vested in it, very interested in it, and they're recreating it and practicing it in their own various ways. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we can we can go into there. Let me sh- share one more. This is one other chart that I saw at one point of somebody shared a 
solar return chart in Arabic for yes. like a young young boy that was cast by his parents or something mm-hmm. for the 12th century. And this was another chart where I was asking them, you know, what divisions were they using? And they were saying that they were using divisions by sign. Yep, sign-based division. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fast. Oh, this is a fantastic chart. Yeah, it's very detailed. It has like way a lot more going detailed. On. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this. But again, sign-based division. Sign-based. Okay. Division. So does it is the ascendant at the top in this one, or is it on yeah, the left? Yeah, the ascendant is is. Uh, it's a little bit. I wish this was a colored. Yeah, I don't see it, but I think yeah, this is the ascendant here. If I'm not mistaken, here's the the data. I'm looking for where it says Ta'il. Ta'il is, just means ascendant, and usually they mark it up at the front. I don't see it at the top, but it looks like this is this is the ascendant. Yeah. So there's one guy that translated it. Let me see. I think he's here. Okay, this guy on Twitter um, translated some of it. Tried oh, to. Oh, Elias, you were wonderful. This is fantastic. Oh, look yeah. at those colors. I love it. So yes, he points ascendant, out that- ascendant at the top. Dad's ascendant is Taurus's natal ascendant is Libra. Mom's ascendant. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so it's Taurus also it's ascendant. not just that, but it's like it's like a sinistry chart because it's showing like the parents' positions as well, and there's a lot of interesting things going on here. Oh yeah, that's fascinating. You, l- please link this to me. I would love to examine this further. Um, sure. I, I wish. Yeah, one of the big problems of manuscripts is just. I mean, the coloring here is such a pain in the ass, and for those right. of us who have uh, bad eyesight. Yeah, <laughs> reading um, manuscripts can be quite tricky, but that's that's fantastic. And Elias is, from what I could tell, Elias's translations are a hundred percent. Okay, good. Um, all right, so back to our our story after that little digression, and back to <laughs> back to Baron. So um, Baron lived in the ninth century during the early Abbasid dynasty, which was like the third caliphate or or dynasty after the Prophet Muhammad, right? Right. Yeah. So there's the Rashidun, the Umayyads, and then the Abbasids. Okay. Um, and she lived in Baghdad, and this was the new capital of the um, Abbasid rulers. And this was during what was essentially like the, what's sometimes called the early Islamic Golden Age, which was like a golden age of like science and translations and astrology and, and all sorts of other things, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the term Golden Age is a little bit misleading nowadays, but it was the common way that it was uh, associated as like this was the gold, the period of intellectual achievement of the Islamic world. We can certainly say that it was the probably one of the most prestigious of the early dynasties, far more than the Umayyads. They lived a very lavish lifestyle, absolute monarchy. Um, but uh, it was also the period in which we see the most translation of text, a concerted effort in sort of engagement with philosophy, with art, beautiful architecture. Um, but was it golden? Maybe less so because it was still quite a brutal time period and a great deal of civil strife and, and conflict and war. But Baghdad itself did become a massive cultural hub. It does get a little bit outshone later on a few centuries by Bukhara uh, over in the east, uh, and then Cairo, which is also built on sort of astrological foundations. But Baghdad becomes the model. It becomes the sort of intellectual hub. And then every sort of Islamic city that's built afterwards is built around the principles of Baghdad as a sort of cultural center, not just as a political center, that it should have some type of massive library. There should be an, uh, some type of endowment for scholars. There should be some type of engagement with intellectual traditions. So Baghdad, we can say, is sort of the first true intellectual capital of the Islamic world. Okay. Um, and here's a 
a map I've always loved from Wikipedia that just shows the expansion of the Islamic Empire starting in 622, coming out of the um, Arabian Peninsula and then expanding over the course of the next century or so across the Middle East, um, as far as the westernmost portions of India, um, up through uh, northern Africa, all the way over to Spain and Portugal and the Iberian Peninsula eventually. Um, and at its height, this was sort of, I think, the, the extent of it, right? Yeah, this is the the extent of it, the largest empire up until that point. But what I should note is that that despite how vast this map looks, it is still divided up politically. So there's different emirates and different kingdoms and different kind of even at the height of the Abbasids, there's a period where the eastern parts of the territories are completely ruled by autonomous rulers. So we can argue that there's a sort of civilizational unity or some type of cultural unity that kind of spans through it, even as politically it might not be one single empire. Okay. And so there's three different sort of dynasties. And by the time we're talking about in the 8th century, the mid to late 8th century, uh, when we get to the Abbasid dynasty, um, the capital initially of the empire was in Damascus, I believe, which is in like modern day Syria, but then it was moved to Baghdad. Yeah. A common tactic of, of most empires when you conquer the empire that came before you, you don't want to change too much, but the one thing you do want to change is your capital. Move your power base elsewhere. So the original power base under the Rashidun's was in Medina, but after the Rashidun's came to an end, the Umayyads moved their capital to Damascus. And so there was already one shift. And they did so in order to align themselves with the Byzantines. The Umayyads, the Banu Umayya, were closely allied with the Byzantines before the coming of Islam. When the Abbasids took over in 750 CE or so, they wanted to move their capital, and over time they eventually did, and they wanted to move it closer to the Persian world as they had garnered a lot of support from Khorasan and this kind of broader Persian region. And so it was a way to kind of break with the Umayyads. And originally they had kind of settled around Ctesiphon, which was the old Persian capital of the Sasanians, until they're like, you know what, we need our own capital and established Baghdad. Okay, so so Baghdad was going to become the new uh, sort of center of the empire, and the caliph at the time was Al-Mansur, and he there's all these legends surrounding that he got together a group of astrologers and asked them to pick an electional date or an auspicious electional chart for the founding of the new capital of Baghdad, and that chart actually survives um, due to Al-Biruni, I believe, right? Yeah, so there, there is a Al-Biruni preserves it, but it comes from Yaqubi originally. Um, and so there's two attestations to this particular horoscope or foundation. So it's pretty, we're pretty confident that that was the the horoscope or the or the t elected time that the astrologers used. Okay, and I can share the chart here. I, it's a little ambiguous. Um, James Holden gives July 31st, 762 CE, around 2 p.m. in Baghdad, Iraq. I did notice that Pingree gave in an article I was reading last night, July 30th, and I wasn't sure. Maybe it's just because we're recreating it based on the chart itself, and so there's two possible dates for yeah. 30th or 31st is kind of where most of us are. We don't know the specifics, and that's just because we're also moving from one calendar to another. Okay, but I, I think the 31st or the yeah, the 31st date might be accurate in my humble opinion. And it's the one that I've used in my work, but I do recognize Pingree as saying the 30th. 
So here is the chart according to calculating it just based on the modern sort of Western tropical zodiac. Um, there's a little bit of a discrepancy there because they could have been using sidereal placements. Um, but for the most part, most of these placements are pretty solid by sign in the re recalculation. So the chart had um, Sagittarius rising with Jupiter in Sagittarius in the first sign or in the first whole sign house in a day chart. Um, which you can, you know, see right away that some some astrologers what what they're doing here in terms of picking out a, a lucky date based on electional principles. Mm -hmm. um, the sun is in Leo in the ninth whole sign house. Um, the moon is somewhere in Libra in the eleventh whole sign house. Uh, Mercury is uh, in Cancer, and and interestingly, it's it's actually stationary. It's stationing direct, so it's just coming out of a retrograde phase. Uh, Venus, I guess, is also in Cancer in the eighth whole sign house. Saturn is in Taurus in the sixth, and Mars is in the seventh house um, in Gemini, uh, famously in the seventh house. And, and we were talking about this, and you said, because it's interesting to me, you were mentioning that there's some debate about this in ancient sources, because in modern sources, when this is looked at as obviously like a great, probably one of the most famous actual examples of electional astrology in history of astrologers. Picking an auspicious date um, and and clearly trying to employ the electional principles in practice, and they have some great things going for it, like Jupiter in in the ascendant and its own domicile in a day chart, or, or the Sun in the ninth and its own domicile. Yeah. But that part that always sticks out to modern astrologers when looking at this is Mars being like right there in the seventh house, very angular and very prominent, opposing the ruler of the ascendant, and you. Yeah. Mentioned in our pre-show talk that that's actually debated in in ancient sources as well. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's a debate on whether Mars's placement in the seventh caused the end of Baghdad, okay. um, as as this place that has constantly been invaded. Um, mm. But Al Khayat gives a, a very interesting argument, and he says that Mars in the seventh place means that you will conquer your enemies, that your enemies will be easily defeated. Um, and so there is uh, that is an indication that there was a debate. There was like, where do we place Mars? And the reality is that they didn't know where to put Mars. Mars is kind of a funk. I mean, it's a dangerous planet, right? Except when it's in its exaltation, where Abu Masher has this very funny phrase where he says, "Mars purrs like a dog, or purrs like a house pet when it's in its exaltation." Okay, um, well, or, as, or as a native with Mars and his exaltation, I'll, I'll take that. I'll thank you, <laughs> yeah. Abu Mashar. <laughs> Abu Mashar is giving you some some cred from from a thousand years ago or so. Right, but there is there is like this question of where do you place Mars? And Al Hayat says, oh, it's a good place, seventh place. It's in the it's on the descendants. It's an indication that you will defeat your enemies. The worst placement for Mars, however, was on the ascendant. That was the big fear. In fact, Baghdad will become then the model for other cities. It's not the only city that is elected. Shiraz has an election chart. We know that it's Virgo rising. Ahmadabad has, uh, almost centuries later, has an electional chart. Um, there's a debate on what the actual chart is. And quite famously, Cairo itself also has an electional chart. And it again comes down to the issue of Mars. So the Khalif Muiz um, tells his astrologers once he's conquered uh, Egypt, he says, I want you to build a city like Baghdad, and I want you to build it based off of astrological principles. And the astrologer at the time is like, yeah, I got this. And so what he does is he stretches out a big rope with bells on it so that he could pull on it, telling the um, the individuals or the diggers when to start the actual building. 
And he stands with his astrolabe and he's looking at the horizon, waiting for the perfect moment to pull on that rope and start this great new city. When the poor guy realizes that suddenly a giant crow lands on the rope, ringing the bell, and people start digging, the astrologer looks up to the heavens and realizes, oh shit, Mars is rising. And he yells, he yells out, Al-Kahir, Al-Kahir, and he runs out trying to stop it, but the damage has been done. Al-Kahir in Arabic means the destroyer or the, the conqueror, and it is a name for Mars. Al-Muiz, the Khalif, however, takes it as an auspicious sign. He says, all right, I'm going to name my city Al-Kahira, Cairo. That's where it comes from. It's a name of Mars. And he takes Mars as auspicious because he had conquered Africa when there was a great conjunction um, in Aries. And so for him, he's like, all right, this martial energy, I'm just going to flow with it. But Mars on the Ascendant was the big scary placement. That was the one like, you don't want to build a city there. It means your city will get destroyed unless you have a really powerful Khalif who's going to reinterpret it in his own way. Yeah, I, I love that. And that's based on the entire branch of uh, Western astrology known as electional astrology. And what was the name for electional astrology in Arabic? Ikhtariyat means selections or choices or timings. Right, because um, so election also means like a choice because you're choosing to start something on one day rather than another day. Yeah, it was the uh, astrology probably most openly associated with magic and and, um, astrological talismans and uh, medicine as well, when to take particular precautions, uh, take particular medicines and whatnot. Um, and it is probably the branch of astrology that demonstrated that there was an element of manipulation when it came to astrology, that it, not everything was fixed, not everything was set in stone, that there was a way of working the heavens to your particular favor. And it was the most popular branch of astrology. We have evidence that even Khalifs who may not have been astrologers knew some element of Khtariyat. They would only meet their commanders on particular days. They would only go to war at particular times. Even if an astrologer wasn't consulting, they themselves knew a particular one. So there was some element of of sort of popular knowledge when it came to electional astrology or ikhtariyat, that everybody knew some component of it. And it's also a good reminder that when we're talking about pre-modern astrology, we are talking about a calendar system first and foremost that this is a way of organizing people's lives. And so we have some fascinating tales about how um, Khalifs would only promote generals when Scorpio was on the ascendant as a way of indicating the martial victory. Um, that they, they would only do plots. And if they ever wanted a conspiracy, they would wait until Cancer was, or I mean, uh, Capricorn was rising because that was the sign of plots. And this was just an indication that even Khalifs, these kind of kings, had some astrological knowledge that makes me think then of that first century story about um, women visiting astrologers so much that they eventually become astrologers themselves because that's that's a legitimate phenomenon where anybody that gets into astrology and gets really into it eventually, if um, motivated enough, does have this um, urge that comes internally to sort of like cut out the middleman of the astrologer who is your sort of gatekeeper to understanding this information and to learn it yourself so that you can make your own choices or use it to your own advantage, either to do elections or to understand your birth chart. And that's why 
I do think that first century story tells us something that may have been a legitimate phenomenon, and we can see echoes of that in later periods, like you talking about the caliphs themselves, you know, getting some understanding of astrology and knowing how to use it at least, at the very least, in the basics, if not more, um, to for their own advantages. And that also led to, I know you have some stories about certain caliphs um, having tests of astrologers in order to test their knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So there are certain, obviously, some uh, caliphs had, you know, more knowledge than others. Um, some of them just had some basic knowledge, and that was just a practical, you know, realities was just practical, right? You can't constantly turn to your court astrologer or to an astrologer to ask every single question. One of the ways that uh, electional astrology was used was for conception. You can't ha- constantly ask yourself, is this a good time to get laid? And it's just a, kind of a weird, sure, maybe the first time around, but after that, you know, it gets a little bit tedious. So you end up learning a little bit about astrology yourself. But other caliphs were very clearly versed in it. Khalif al-Ma'mun, for example, who is the husband of Bauran, um, very famously um, was knowledgeable in astrology to the point where he would test his astrologers out. He would ask them questions. And there was a variety of different, and all the caliphs do it. Al-Mutasim does it, Mutakawil, they all kind of test their astrologers. There's one very famous example, uh, Liana Saif, the brilliant Liana Saif, uh, who is a, also a historian of Islamic esotericism, relates the story of Abu Mashir in her book, um, The Arabic Influences on Early Modern Occult Philosophy. Um, she mentions how the caliph holds an object in his hand behind his back, and he asks his court astrologers, what do I have behind my back? And so they cast in, an interrogational chart to discover it. And one of the um, uh, astrologers goes, ah, it's some type of fruit. And Abu Mashir, the famed astrologer, goes, it's an animal. And the caliph reveals that it's a small apple. It's a beautiful little red apple. And Abu Mashar, being the the confident jackhole that he is, cannot accept that he got it wrong. He's like, there's no way. So he sits down and he looks at the chart and he kind of thinks to himself, like, what, what did I miss here? And then suddenly he shouts out, oh, Allahu Akbar, and he rushes forward, grabs the apple and tears it in two to discover that there are worms inside. So there's all sorts of these funny little anecdotes about you know, uh, Khalif's trying to test out how well their astrologers knew what they were talking about. They also use their astrologers to test other people. So there's another example of, for example, miracle worker that shows up in the court of Baghdad, and it's the astrologers that must test whether this miracle worker is legit or not. And it'll be actually Abu Mashar that's like, no, no, this guy's a charlatan because he has mercury in Scorpio. And that's the sign of charlatans and liars and deceivers. Um, and so yes, there is this uh, way Abu of Mashar, testing others. From his student, uh, Shadan's like, uh, recounting of some of Abu Mashar's sayings, um, I get the sense that Abu Mashar was not a fan of the sign Scorpio very frequently. He had a complicated relationship with, with Scorpio. I would say in interrogational charts and in definitely in electional charts, Abu Mashar is not a fan of Scorpio, but he is far kinder to them in his natal work. In Kitab al-Mawlid, he calls them one of the signs of wisdom, that those who have Scorpio ascendant or who are natives or born under the star Scorpio all end up becoming wise spiritual leaders, occultists, astrologers. And so he's he has sort of a mixed response. In interrogational work, absolutely not. If there's ever a Scorpio placement, he thinks the person is like a murderer or a thief or, or something right. along those lines. Or, or de- deception or something. Or deception or something along those lines, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, all right. So let's see. So back to our um, Baghdad electional chart. So there's some controversy about the Mars in the seventh house, just because it's Mars, it's a day chart, and it's um, applying to an opposition with the ruler of the ascendant. And so there was some astrologers you said that defended that placement. There's others that said that, that criticized it or, or said that that's a problematic placement in, in the later tradition. Yeah, there is those that say that the best placement for Mars should never be the seventh house because it's an indication that you will be conquered yourself. Um, and they will argue that the best placement for Mars is actually the 11th house of hopes. That way you yourself are the conqueror. You achieve your dreams of conquering the world. We will see this particularly with Timurid astrologers, quite famously, uh, Timure Lang or Tamerlane as he's known. His horoscope will have Mars in the 11th house, and that will be a sign of him being a conqueror. His grandson, Iskandar, will also have Mars in the 11th house, uh, in Scorpio, in fact, and that's an indication that he will be a conqueror. So there is an argument over where you place Mars, but the Al-Hayat says it's an okay placement, and in fact will go on to make the claim that because Mars is in the 7th house, that means no Khalif will ever die, or blood, this blood of the Khalif will never be spilled in um, Baghdad. And indeed, there's a sort of funny story that when Baghdad is eventually conquered, the uh, Mongols end up not wanting to spill the blood of the Khalif, and they, they wrap him up in a rug and trample him with all their horses as a way to avoid actually cutting him or spilling his blood. And some say that is the horoscope of Baghdad made manifest, that he may have been conquered and defeated, but his blood was not spilled. But then there's other arguments, for example, Abu Mashr and in particular Al-Biruni that will make the case that uh, Mars in Gemini uh, is an indication of scholars fighting amongst themselves, of religious scholars in particular constantly being in a state of war or debate with one another. And so it was not a, yes, you created an intellectual center, but you created an intellectual center with a bunch of debate bros debate me, bro, debate me, bro, because you have Mars in Gemini. Which is funny and ironic because Abu Mashar originally came out of that tradition and was like a religious scholar until he was in his 40s and famously yeah. debated with the philosopher and astrologer Al-Kindi. Al-Kindi, yeah. And Al-Kindi was the one that got Abu Mashar into astrology after those arguments. Yeah, somewhat tricked him into astrology, actually. He doesn't really kind of, he very circumspects, like, you need to get better at math. And the math was the sort of entryway into astrology. You get you studied arithmetic, and then it led you to astrology. And Abu Mashar sucked at the math. He hated it. He was not a good student when it came to math, but he was excellent in the astrology. So Al-Kindi does some sort of subtle Jedi mind trick on him and convinces him to become an astrologer. Right. Like probably just challenged him like, I bet you can't learn this subject mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so let's see. And then to wrap up this section about Mars, just um, yeah, the in the ancient like Dorotheus electional tradition, yeah. there's just a general association that whatever you're starting and you yourself, the one initiating the action, is the first house, yeah. and the seventh house is like the default other, um, who in a like if a one on one sense would be like the other person receiving the action or the partner or what have you, and that's one of the reasons why people might treat Mars in the seventh uh, as problematic. The main thing I come back to though is just a practitioner that people have to remember is just electional astrologers don't have full reign to just you can't wait a century for like the best chart to do a certain thing you've got to make do with what's available 
And when it comes to electional charts, you never know what time restraints the astrologer was working with, what their constraints were of did they have like a year to plan out a chart? Did they have two to three to five years? Or did they have like a month and they just had to pick the best that they could? And so this was the best that they could do with Jupiter on the ascendant in the first house and the sun and moon well placed, but just that that lingering issue of Mars being opposing, but you sometimes you just got to do the best you can with what you have to work with. Yeah, you you there are there's never a sort of perfect moment ever in in history for it. And we certainly see this also with the with for them was the outer planets. While you can certainly make sure that Jupiter, for example, is rising, you also couldn't do too much with Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, right? The one thing you could do is make sure that they weren't, you know, in a particularly bad sign, right? So so, you know, make sure that Mars isn't in a sign that's going to make Mars even worse. You want Mars either exalted or you want Mars that's all right. He's kind of chilling in a sign somewhere and it's not too bad. But then the question of do you want Mars rising? Do you want Mars in the midheaven? Do you want Mars uh, setting in, on the descendant? So there's always a sort of fu- a funky debate around what to do with Mars. And there isn't a clear answer. The medieval Islamic astrologers just don't have one answer on what to do with Mars. The one thing they mostly agree on is you don't want it rising. You don't, except in the case of Khalif Muiz, who's just decided to throw the rule book out the window. You don't want it rising because then you're 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 facing a very dangerous Mars. Yeah, that makes sense. So the the city was founded in 762, and it um, quickly became a new center for for science and learning and philosophy and there's this. It was famously like a, a round city and was designed to be um, like a circle with four gates. And I don't know where. I think you use this in one of your threads. I'm not sure where this image comes from, but there's this illustration I've seen all over the place of this being mm-hmm. rough, roughly what Baghdad looked like. Yeah, I wish I knew what the attribution of this was so that I can give credit. I, I've used it in my powerpoints, and it's a fantastic example of Baghdad's astrological principles. So it's not just that they were elected. Based off of astrology, the city itself is designed to reflect the celestial order. These are the spheres, the outer spheres, the inner spheres, with the caliph right in the center, almost as a sort of uh, first cause prime mover or the manifestation of God's shadow, as he's often called, on earth. And then that reverberates outward. And this was their understanding of how astrology worked, why astrology was an omen of something is because there was a first cause. This is their sort of Aristotelian understanding of astrology, that there was a first cause that then reverberated through a chain of being until it manifested in the sublunar world. And Baghdad is meant to architecturally, uh, design-wise, reflect that astrological principle. Yeah, and and it seems like an amazing city, and was the height of like city planning in the eighth and ninth century. And eventually, um, what were the numbers? It came to hold something like a million or two million people. Yeah, at its several height. million people. We have some conflicting accounts, but one really good way of understanding the sort of prestige of Baghdad, um, as well as the sort of just the sheer numbers that they were working with. Is that on average in the medieval Latin world, a monastery would have something like 20 books or so. And that was considered very wealthy. And that's a result of the fact that books were made on vellum, they were quite expensive to make. But a European ambassador from the Carolingian dynasty comes to Baghdad and he enters a shop where he sees somewhere in the count of like 10,000 books. And he's kind of shocked. He goes, This isn't, this is, this must be 
the king's palace. And the guy goes, I'm a bookseller. This is the street of booksellers. There's 800 other shops with it. And he just, it couldn't, he couldn't wrap his mind around just how wealthy the city was, but also the level of merchants that they were interacting with. If you need that many bookstores, you're talking about millions of people passing through. This isn't like a Starbucks on every corner. This is like a Barnes and no just a street of Barnes and Nobles. Um, and that's just to, to, to appeal to merchants that are coming from outside the city, merchants that are living there, people that are living there. So we're talking about millions and millions of denizens and subjects of Baghdad. Wow, that's that's amazing, and and so and it also became a hub of like intellectual activity and of translation efforts, and there was a concerted effort to translate um, older or ancient works from Greek and and Latin and um, Sanskrit into Arabic, and to sort of inherit the intellectual tradition of some of these earlier empires and earlier peoples. And and astrology books were some of the first texts that were translated into Arabic. Yeah, there is a variety of reasons for the translations. One, it was a wealthy empire. It was wealthy, and so you've got to spend your money on something, and you can double that wealth. You can double the prestige through learning. If you attract scholars, if you attract translators, that's a way of demonstrating your prestige. It's also a way for the Abbasids to demonstrate their legitimacy. They are an, a philosophical ruler. They see themselves in many ways as philosopher kings in the, in the Platonic tradition, right? in the tradition of Plato. Al-Ma'mun is debating with his philosophers and theologians. He sees himself as a philosopher first and foremost. And so it's a way of legitimizing their rule, but they also had a deep, deep appreciation for ancient knowledge. They had an understanding that the ancient world had secrets and mysteries that needed to be preserved. And so Persian forms of knowledge, Indic forms of knowledge, Greek forms of knowledge are all being preserved. It's also important to remember that they are not foreigners ruling over uh, foreign countries, so to speak. They're working with the local traditions. So when we talk about, for example, translating Greek text, well, the Greeks are translating the Greek texts. So this is one of the reasons why the translations are so accurate is because it's not always being translated by Arabic speakers. They're being translated by Greek speakers first, people who were Greek themselves or people who were Syriac themselves, who were translating a tradition that they were familiar with, a tradition that was being lived within the region. And so astrology wasn't sort of adapted from the outside. It was integrated from the local level. It was being used in these cities. Their astrologers lived there, and the the Greek speakers were living there, and they got integrated into the empire itself. So it's a fascinating example of the way in which sort of top-down translation with local integration worked hand-in-hand in, hand in order to produce this intellectual flourishing. So you're thinking of, of astrologers like, for example, Theophilus of Edessa, exactly. who was like uh, from Syria, mm-hmm. who um, his first language was probably was either Syrian or or was Greek, but yeah. also knew Arabic, and he served one of the caliphs as a military advisor for electional charts. Yep, exactly. And we have other examples of of unnamed astrologers, of people who are sort of locals who have been who either spoke Greek or spoke Indian. So for example, we have an example, uh, Hanka al Hindi. Who knows Sanskrit? He's from India. He's an he's an Indic astrologer, and he makes his way to Baghdad, where he starts translating um, various Vedic and Indic texts. And then that was a way in which it becomes incorporated in amber. So these are people who are all or who are translating their own traditions. They're translating the traditions that they are aware of. It's not necessarily, for example, Arabs translating something foreign or different into Arabic culture, Islamic culture. It's rather an integration process of what's already there. 
even the the idea of a Baghd, uh, of Baghdad as a as a center of learning is adapted from Gundashapir, which is an older Persian city. So they basically just take the books that are already there and move them over to Baghdad and start to translate them. Right. It's sort of like it's the you know the first century. There is Alexandria, which was this huge yeah. metropolitan city, which is a melting pot of a bunch of different cultures, and we see. Different astrological traditions converge there from Mesopotamia and from Egypt, and then you get this new synthesis of astrology, also infused with like Greek culture and, and a bunch of different mm-hmm. cultures that produces Hellenistic astrology in like the first century BCE, and you get a similar thing happening in Baghdad in the eighth and ninth centuries, which is just this huge convergence of different cultures, which yeah. creates a new and unique synthesis of astrology, which is the birth of. Essentially, what we call early medieval astrology, basically to distinguish it from the earlier, mm-hmm. let's say, Greco-Roman or like Hellenistic tradition, which is usually considered to have been practiced up until like the sixth or seventh century or something like that. Yeah, I think the example of Alexandria here as an analogy is a perfect, perfect example. Alexandria is the same sort of process, a sort of top-down, but also the integration of the local. Right? He's he Alexander's establishing his city. He has a very keen interest in promoting Hellenism. But Hellenism isn't just Greek culture. Hellenism is local culture. The heartland of Hellenism isn't even in Greece. It's in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. Right? For the vast majority of the ancient world, it's it's in Anatolia. And there's an integration of Egyptian knowledge. There's an, an integration of local peoples. Um, this sort of gets flattened in the way we often talk about both uh, the Hellenistic tradition and the Islamic tradition. We often use terms that can sometimes be misleading. So, for example, we use the term Western, right? Mm-hmm. We often say Western astrology or the Western intellectual tradition is a deeply misleading way of talking about it. And of course, it's a product of the Renaissance racialization, but it also erases whole groups of people who are working on it. So people talk about, for example, decolonizing knowledge. One way to decolonize it is to return to the historical roots, right? Why is it that an ancient Egyptian is considered Western, but a modern Egyptian is not? Mm. Right. This is a deeply problematic way of understanding what Western means. Ptolemy is a prime example of this. We actually don't know what Ptolemy's ethnicity is. He likely right. was an Egyptian who was Hellenized. But we talk about him as Greek, 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 because we imagine Greek as white, when in actuality, Greek is more in common with Egypt and Syria and Lebanon than it does with, say, the Nordic world. And the same thing with with Arabic astrology. When we call it Arabic astrology or when we call it um, Persian astrology, we miss out on the fact that plenty of people contributed and participated in it who didn't fall into these linguistic categories which is made worse by the fact that linguistic categories become ethnic categories in the modern world. Not right. all Arabic speakers are Arabs, mm. right? Where do we place someone like Al-Rajal, who's Tunisian? He's called an Arabic astrologer. Why is he not North African? Right. Why is he not Tunisian? Why does he become Arab? Because he speaks Arabic. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of thinking, I think Alexandria offers us a really great model for pushing back on these kind of categories. Rather than talk about Western, we talk about Hellenistic astrology. Rather than talk about Arabian or Persian astrology, we talk about Islamic astrology. And rather than talk about Western astrology, we talk about these kind of more complicated terms, Hellenistic, Islamic, medieval, Latin, Renaissance, etc. Yeah, I, I love that. And that's a really great point, just that when these certain, especially ancient languages, becomes like a lingua franca in yeah. Different time periods, there's people from many different cultures and ethnic backgrounds that will use that yeah. language to communicate and share ideas with each other. 
like when Greek became the common spoken language by the first century BCE in Alexandria, and then you have many different people from different ethnic backgrounds using that, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily ethnic Greek people. Exactly. And then you have a similar thing in Arabic in the eighth and ninth centuries where it becomes the lingua franca of the ancient world, but you have many different people from different ethnic and religious backgrounds using Arabic to write, for example, astrological texts, yeah. but you can't necessarily make assumptions about their ethnicity just based on that. Exactly. And this is also a way of really kind of recovering, as we, we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you, you quite brilliantly pointed out how, for example, women don't show up. We have the exact same issue when it comes to people's ethnicities and identities, right? Where are black people in astrology? Where are other, you know, ethnic groups in astrology? Uh, you know, where are all these different categories? When we kind of create Arabic astrology or Persian astrology or Greek astrology, we flatten those complexities. We flatten those differences. So someone like Al-Rijal goes from being Tunisian or having kind of multiple identities, being Muslim, being Ifraqi from Ifraqiya, he suddenly becomes Arab. Right, mm. his identity gets lost in that sort of flattening discourse. So, in the same way that we sort of recover the voices of women, so too must we recover the voices of other people that don't fit our ideas, our narrow definitions of ethnicity. That makes a lot of sense. So that brings us back to our topic, which is um, we have astrologers like Theophilus of Edessa, who was a, a Christian that wrote in Arabic, but then we also have um, uh, we have. Abu Mashar, who was a Muslim astrologer, and also um, Masha Allah, who was involved in like the picking the foundational chart for Baghdad, was evidently like a Jewish astrologer uh, who wrote in, in Arabic. So there's many different sort of ethnic and religious identities sort of going into this. They're all speaking in the same language in this time period. Yeah, Ibn Hibinta is is Christian, right? So very clearly, uh, Saul was probably a Zoroastrian, uh, we believe, or possibly also a Christian. Uh, mashallah is less involved. This is a sort of interesting little side note, but mashallah is actually less involved with the foundation of Baghdad than we might think. That's mostly a product of the sort of Latin tradition that he ends up becoming this huge figure because he writes books. In reality, it's now Bacht who casts the foundation. Mashallah was like 19 or 18 when the foundation happened. He was still an apprentice too. Now Bacht, so he certainly was a participant, um, but not a, a sort of a major player. But he ends up writing some of the most foundational texts in the way that Now Bacht doesn't, and so he becomes huge in the later Latin tradition. But he is a of Persian and Jewish descent, and he sees himself as part of this Islamic society, as part of this Islamic civilization and culture. And that diversity is really crucial for understanding these periods. These are very, very diverse empires, both the Hellenistic empires as well as uh, as the Islamic ones. Very diverse with a complex group of characters that come from religious, different religious backgrounds, different ethnicities, and all of them are contributing to this intellectual tradition. Yeah, and I love one of the key things there is the multiculturalism in these different areas often leads to these great flourishings of astrology. And one of the things to tie it back into something you were saying earlier is that just like in um, Alexandria, where there was uh, some level of royal or state support for libraries and, and uh, translations and literary um, efforts through the Library of Alexandria, we have a parallel with that in the eighth and ninth centuries with the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. Exactly, exactly. In fact, the Library of Alexandria is one of the motivations for Bait al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom. 
Could you tell me a little bit more for those that are not familiar with it about the the House of Wisdom? Yeah, so the House of Wisdom or Bayt al-Hikmah is an institution that is started by Harun al-Rashid, one of the caliphs of the Abbasid period and kind of concluded by Ma'mun. It is a vast, vast library and translation program. It likely wasn't a single place and it isn't a library in the way we might imagine libraries today. It was an institution, more akin perhaps to say a foundation or a university center. This was a place in which they wanted, the Abbasids wanted to attract a great deal of scholarship, they wanted to attract translators, and they had committed a significant amount of their funds to translating ancient knowledge, particularly around medicine, mathematics, philosophy, science, which includes astrology at this time period, um, but also um, a place where scholars could engage in theology and debate. It was accessible to any scholar that came there, so we we often have a hard time kind of imagining it in the sort of modern capitalist sense. But this would have been funded fully by the Abbasid Khalifs, and the scholars would have all received stipends and paid for their work by the Khalifs themselves. There would have been individuals dedicating their entire lives to recovering ancient knowledge, translating that, debating and discovering new knowledge. It's basically a bunch of nerds that got paid to be nerds. Um, and it would became the model for most cities. Cairo would also develop its own institutions. Bukhara would establish its own institutions. And it was a way of demonstrating both wealth and prestige. Look what we have built. Islamic societies had a very keen understanding of beauty. They had a very, very dedicated uh, focus on beautifying the world around them. They wanted to create, in many ways, paradise on earth. So they built vast gardens, uh, you know, running fountains, beautiful places that you can kind of walk and travel through. And one of the ways that they saw beauty was through knowledge. Books were beautiful to them. And knowledge was beautiful to them. There was a sort of beauty in mathematics and the simplicity of calculations. And they wanted to demonstrate that by housing it and embodying that knowledge in a physical place. And Bayt al-Hikmah is the embodiment of that knowledge. That's brilliant. And I wonder if part of that is motivated by the just the tradition surrounding the Quran and the importance of like the written word and written tradition in terms of that? Absolutely. Their the language is is important to them. And so we find, for example, that Khalifs speak multiple languages. We know that they get trained to read and write in Greek, that they also read and write Arabic, and they also read and write in Persian. But the Quran, as it is canonized and sort of fixes Arabic as the lingua franca and also produces a very literate society, if you have a textual religion, a religion in which you must memorize a text or you write a text or you must read a text in order to participate in the religious functions, then you are going to have a literate society. That doesn't mean that they have literacy in the way that we imagine it today, like 90% or something, right? But they are a highly literate society. And we find, for example, ordinary people engaging in these texts that we're not just talking about elite culture. One prime example of this is the astrological text. Many of the books that are written during this time period by people like Abu Mashar in particular, his Kitab al-Murid, his, his great introduction to astrology, is meant to be read by ordinary people. It's meant to be read by anybody who reads Arabic to pick it up and sort of learn the foundations or the philosophical roots of astrology and then find an astrological teacher to sort of master it. And so this is a society that sees the word as sacred. There's magic and beauty in the written language, and that is then manifested in the actual translation of texts, which they see as 
as sort of, of, of gateways into ancient wisdom. That's brilliant. The, the term I was thinking of when you're describing like how to describe this in the House of Wisdom was almost like like research institute might be a modern yeah, fantastic yeah. term, sort of roughly uh, almost equivalent to what yeah. what we're describing there. And also, exactly. I was reading last night that some what, part of the policy, um, like in Alexandria, they had this policy sometimes, reportedly at least, of like ships coming in and sometimes texts being confiscated and then they would make a copy of the text and the library might keep the original and give the copy back to the ship. Um, we didn't, there's not an analogy in Baghdad, but there were stories about sending out emissaries to like the Byzantine Empire, to the Greek-speaking Empire to collect important texts and manuscripts and things and offering large amounts of money in order to collect actual texts that then could be brought back to Baghdad and translated. Yeah, they had not only people that they sent out and collected, but they also put out uh, basically a help wanted sign, if you will. Any sort of scholar that wanted to come to Baghdad, if they brought books with them, would be immediately elevated and immediately accepted. But they also paid to train people, people who were unlettered, people who were unschooled, could come to Baghdad and become a scholar. It was actually one of the ways in which social mobility was built into the society. You could come from any background. You don't have to come from nobility. But if you became a scholar, if you found books and brought them over and you started off as a translator or you started off learning the language and then you could work your way up to becoming a translator and then from becoming a translator, you become an alim or a scholar. There was a way to move up. So there was a way in which they, Baghdad acted as a magnet, both actively going out and seeking knowledge and drawing it in, but also just passively waiting for scholars to come in by building this massive institution and saying, hey, we've got the money, we're going to throw it your way if you come and you help us out. If you find books in your local village, bring it to Baghdad. We will preserve it, we will elevate you, and we will pay you. And people did. They would bring books that they found, even texts that they couldn't read, because they knew that they would be safe in Baghdad. All right. So um, this brings us to Baran's family line, where um, part of Baran's story starts actually with the founding of Baghdad, where um, I believe it was her great grandfather, grandfather, who's known sometimes as Nabokht the Persian, was the head astrologer that was in charge of picking the electional charter, the foundation for Baghdad, right? Yeah. Nabokht al Farsi, the, the astrologer, was the court astrologer of the Abbasids, he establishes Baghdad. He's the one that not only selects the particular time, but also is the individual that helps to design it. He's also likely the teacher of mashallah. He's likely the one who introduces mashallah to the Persianate brands of astrology. So the introduction of things like the Great Conjunction, the introduction of the Fardars, the introduction of the planet, what we call the planetary periods, probably came through Naubacht, uh, to mashallah as a result of his contributions to baghdad he is named court astrologer munajim to the khalifs and that becomes a hereditary title that is then passed down to his son um i think bauran's dad is the only one that doesn't end up be- becoming an astrologer himself but the entire line is a line of astrologers it's one of a dozen astrological families that pass down hereditary knowledge of astrology, um, but also who become court astrologers in a sort of hereditary fashion. Father is a court astrologer, son is a court astrologer, and it just kind of passes down. What's great about that is not only is this a sort of interesting historical tidbit, but it was also demonstrative of sort of the contemporary experience of astrology in the Middle Eastern world or the Islamic world today. 
people who are of who practice the sort of living tradition of astrology practice it now predominantly through a family lineage. Someone in their family was an astrologer who then teaches them to be an astrologer, and then that passes down. Right. So there's an oral lineage yeah. and transmission from teacher to student, or from from parent to uh, son, or in some instances perhaps daughter. Exactly. And and we also have that also in India, where the yep. the or- oral tradition is very strong and very yep. important. Exactly. Okay. So um, what one of the things I wanted to mention about that because it's a good um, digression, but uh, so Nabokht was from the from sort of the it was from a large Persian family from Khorasan, mm-hmm. yep. and this is from the sort of eastern part of the empire, from the, the Persian part of the empire. And what does when we talk about Khorasan, what um, does that encompass in terms of modern day geography? Yeah, so this is eastern Iran, modern day Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. It's kind of a huge number of, of sort of modern day nation states. And it would have included a very diverse group of people that today would have been considered Central Asian, South Asian, Persianate. Um, it's, and it is also probably the most autonomous part of the empire. It's sort of in the mountains. There's weird geography. And so if you were named a governor of this particular region, you had a great deal of autonomy, and so part of a great deal of uh, Islamic history is shaped by Khorasan. The Abbasid Caliphate itself stems from a revolution that starts in Khorasan. They gather their their kind of supporters under Abu Muslim al Khorasani, literally Abu Muslim from Khorasan. In Khorasan, they gather their troops and then they march on. Damascus. And so now Bacht comes from Khorasan. He's connected to it. It's also where we see a great deal of Sasanian power. But because when you have an autonomous territory, that also means it's where there's a great deal of political turmoil. Every time a kingdom is overthrown, you can bet your, you know, dollars to donuts that it's probably someone from Khorasan, that there's some type of revolution that started at Khorasan. Someone has gathered troops and now they're marching somewhere. Okay, and and part of in terms of the history of astrology, one of the reasons this is important is the distinction between, let's say, the when the Arabic tradition really picks up in the eighth and ninth centuries, the Arabic speaking astrological tradition versus the earlier Sasanian Persian astrological tradition, which had been around for several centuries up to that point, and um, the eighth century in Baghdad, this really becomes the transition point between the Persian astrological tradition. Um, and the Arabic astrological tradition, and maybe we can spend a little bit talk, time of talking about that just to set up that distinction. Because part of the transmission and part of what, for example, like David Pingree tried to document was there was a transmission of texts starting at least in like the third century, where some texts in Greek, such as Dorotheus, started being translated from Greek into Sasanian Persian or into Middle Persian. And then that started a tradition, a new tradition of horoscopic astrology in Persia that thrived for for several centuries, maybe being at its height around the sixth or seventh century under the um, Persian emperor King Khusro the first, I believe, right? Yeah. So there is a there is a tradition of astrology or astral omens that predates horoscopic astrology in the Sasanians. We see likely, for example, the planetary periods, the fardars, the sort of calendric system, a cycle, a dynamic calendar, likely would have existed in Sasanian Persia. But horoscopic astrology is likely a Greek contribution, a Hellenistic contribution. It's a good reminder again that we're not looking at a sort of teleological or linear history. You know, astrology doesn't start 
in, in the Greek world, take a detour in the Islamic world, and then go back to Europe. But rather, these are overlapping cycles and constant states of exchange. So we see, for example, this first transmission, this first exchange happening in the Sasanian world. And we see examples from Andrzejar and others, these sort of fantastic beginnings of horoscopic astrology that then are picked up by the astrologers of the Islamic world and brought together with the horoscopic translations or the translations of horoscopic astrology from the Greek world. And so there's a fusion that happens. And Al-Biruni is the one that tells us that the kind of bridge between these two worlds, between the Persianate tradition that already exists and the Hellenistic tradition that is being translated and adapted is likely mashallah. Mashallah is the one that really kind of brings them all together. He's the one that in fact puts forth the first great conjunction theory long before Abu Mashar does, even though Abu Mashar takes us to its sort of uh, zenith, if you will. But it is really mashallah that brings it all, but he probably learned it from Naubacht. We have very strong indications that mashallah at the founding of Baghdad was the assistant of Naubacht and his student, and likely would have learned the sort of Persianate tradition from Naubacht and then brought it together with the Hellenistic tradition, which produces the sort of unique flavor or character of the Islamic astrology of the 9th century, 8th century, all the way to the 18th century. That's It makes a lot of sense and is really important. So because part of it, while well, there's a transmission of Hellenistic astrology and horoscopic astrology to Persian that's practiced for several centuries, there's and and we don't not a lot of the Persian texts from that time period survive because many of them were destroyed um, in the subsequent ensuing wars after the rise of the Islamic Empire in like the seventh century. So there's a loss of a lot of Persian texts, so that we don't know a lot about what was going on during that period, but. There's a few techniques that developed in the interim that we assume that probably were developed in the Islamic or in the the Persian Empire between the third and the seventh centuries, such as the um, approach to mundane astrology that involves the great conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn in order to study world history and the rise of different religious leaders and dynasties, and that's probably one of the innovations that happened in in Persia that you were just mentioning. There, um, but also even some of the ways that horary astrology developed, and some of the new rules like um, transfer of light and collection of light, and some of those rules don't show up in Hellenistic astrology. They're just sort of there all of a sudden in the eighth century and early Arabic astrology. And I assume that some of those were probably developed in the Persian tradition as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's likely a transmission here, and again, we're talking sort of exchanges from the Indic world. Uh, into the Persian world. And this is also where Pingri, in my opinion, a little bit as brilliant as he was, is a little bit blind that he's, he only sees a sort of transmission to India. He doesn't always see the transmission from India. Right. Um, but yeah, there was likely some transmissions from India at this particular time that would have contributed to the development of uh, the, some of the techniques in what we, we call today horary astrology. But this would have been Persian at style. And then that gets adapted by Mashallah, uh, who really kind of gives a full outline of how to, how to actually implement these strategies. The reality is that we're, that we know we have some minor evidence of this. But like you mentioned, most of these texts have been destroyed partly because they didn't write a lot of it down. Mm-hmm. They wrote a couple texts. There was a few texts, but there wasn't a sort of flourishing of writing. Even, for example, the Hellenistic writers, there's way more Hellenistic writers than there were Sasanian writers on astrology. We have a few of them. We know that they existed. Uh, we know that it was probably a, a family lineage. Now, Bacht is an example of this. 
that the Sasanians probably passed down astrological knowledge in a hereditary fashion from one person to the next, that there may have been some teaching involved, but mostly bound up in families. And then the court astrologer was also a hereditary tradition. So the Islamic tradition not only adapts the Persian methods that we see in mashallah, but so too does it borrow the sort of a Persian structure when it comes to the transmission of knowledge. That is, family lines and then hereditary official titles. The court astrologer becomes father, son, grandson, so on and so forth. That comes from Sasanian Persia. Okay. And I think one of the points that Pingree made then is that it's not an accident then that many of the leading astrologers in the first like few generations of astrologers writing in Arabic in the 8th and 9th century had a strong Persian influence or were, were Persians themselves because of that long pre-existing of astrology for, for a few centuries in Persia leading up to that point? Yeah, we could certainly say that there was a, a massive Persian contribution to this time period. But it is, again, identity is very complicated, right? So for example, mashallah probably wouldn't have identified, he, I mean, he spoke Persian, certainly, but he would have identified with his religious community. He was, he was a Jew of, of Jewish descent, maybe lived in the Persianate Empire. Ibn Hibinta is another one of the early translators or, or that's working with Mashallah, but he's of Christian background. We don't even know if he's if he's Persian. We think he's of Arabic, Syriac as well. But there is, uh, without a doubt, a, a Persian contribution, not just in astrology, but in the intellectual tradition, but also in the language. By about the 10th century, we'll see Persian emerge as its own important language, as its own sacra language, sacred in its own rights, alongside Arabic. And we'll start to see Persian treatises uh, in uh, about astrology. So there is, a, there is a Persian contribution, and we see it in the Abbasid period, who in their own way aligned themselves with the Sasanians. They saw themselves as a continuity with the Sasanians that came before them. Right. So that sets things up for um, our central figure, which is Nabak the Persian, who is the lead astrologer for founding of Baghdad. But then he has uh, a son who is an astrologer, and then he has a son that was an astrologer. And there's this whole like family line that starts at that point. Um, and Nabak lived from like circa, according to James Holden, like 679 through 777 CE. And um, I just wanted to show this passage from Holden just because his description of this family line is so interesting and it ties directly into Baran. And this is the point where, for anybody waiting, this is where we're going to transition into actually talking about Baran and our subject of this primary subject of this episode. But Holden, he's talking about Nabok the Persian and, and the picking of the founding chart for Baghdad. Um, he talks about um, Masha Allah being one of his assistants. And then he says that Nabokht retired some years before his death and was succeeded as court astrologer by his son, Abu Saul ibn Nabokht, who died somewhere around 786. And then one of this person's sons, uh, Abu Saul al Fadl ibn Nabokht, who lived until around 815, was court astrologer to the caliph Harun al Rashid, who re reigned from 786 to 809, and supervisor of the royal library. He wrote at least seven books on astrology, but only fragments of them remain. Two of his grandsons, according to says Holden, were court astrologers to the caliphs Al-Mamun and Al-Watiq, um, as well as um, Al-Mutawakil, and a sixth-generation descendant of Nabok the Persian, Musa ibn Nabok, was the author of an extensive work on astrological history following in the footsteps of Abu Mashar. So this is just like a whole family lineage comes out of this very 
you know, crucial early astrologer, um, Nabok the Persian. Yeah. Is this from his History of Horoscopic Astrology? Yeah, this is from James Holden's 1996 book, A History oh, yeah. of Horoscopic Astrology, which is still my favorite book on the history of astrology. Just because it's a really good it, book. Yeah, it's so concise, and he packs uh, so much into such short spaces in focusing on like the biographical history yeah. of who the important astrologers were in different periods. Yeah. Now, Bach's family line ends up becoming generations of astrologers, but they're one of twelve families. One of actually probably more families. We have names of them. One of them is one of the families is known as the Banu Musa. They're also court astrologers. Uh, up until I would say Abu Mashar, most of the court astrologers were hereditary. Abu Mashar is kind of one of the few exceptions in which he's not. He just sort of learns it, and then because because he's so good, he becomes court astrologer. But it's a cushy job, right? They're getting paid around the equivalent of a Supreme Court justice, if you will, a lot of money to be the court astrologer, and you live in the palace. And so their families want to pass down that knowledge and the cushy job and the money that comes with it. So the Banu Musa, for example, Banu Musa, were, their original founder was actually a highwayman, a robber, who then becomes an astrologer. He becomes so good at it, he impresses the caliph that he then passes it on to his son. And then one of the family lines is known as the Banu Munajim, literally the family of astrologers. That's the name of the family, Banu Munajim. Um, and so That's there was a bunch of, like- of them. In the modern times, we have some of these names that are carries over for that, that they're like trade names like Taylor, like the last name Taylor, where originally it was like a actual Taylor as a job description, and that's sort of like a equivalent. Exactly. And so the Banu Munajim were all astrologers, or they were a tribe of astrologers that sort of passed down the knowledge. And now Bacht is probably the most illustrious of the of all the family lineages. To be connected to Naubacht was to be connected to the very foundation of Baghdad itself. Okay. And so uh, Baran was part of this family lineage, and she was uh, part of the Naubacht family, family lineage. And as a result of that, she being from a family essentially of astrologers, Baran would have then, it's a very easy inference to say that she would have had some exposure to astrology, but then it raises the question of can you make another inference? Would she also have had some training in astrology? Um, for her, the circumstances were right that she very well could have. I think I think we could say pretty easily, right? Yeah, we would don't know who her, her teacher would have been. There was a lot of court astrologers around that she could have learned from, but it was not unusual for women to be trained as from from their family line, not as a sort of casual thing, but as a formal act of learning. Women had one of the ways that women in Islamic society were able to move up in the world was through learning. So one of the things that we see in the medieval Islamic tradition is that there is an opening up for women. It's still a patriarchal society, like all ancient societies are. But we start to see more and more women scholars, we see women scientists, women philosophers, and they're engaged in learning. And that was a way for them to develop prestige, renown, and become, you know, famous in their own rights. We find, for example, Mariam Astrolabi. She's known for being an astrolabe maker, right? She learned it from her father. Um, Ala Samarkandi, she is a religious scholar in the Hanafi tradition of Islam, and she learned it from her husband. So learning from their family and then becoming scholars in their own right would have been likely what happened with Bauran. So this is not an instance of, for example, her just learning because she grew up with the Naubachs. There would have been a formal aspect of training her. She would have been trained in astrology, and so the anecdote that we have from her also demonstrates the techniques she's using, which indicate formalized learning. This is not a person 
who's knows that what the ascendant is and sort of makes basic temperament questions, right, or answers. This is a person who's using very advanced forms of astrology, which indicates that she had some formal training from her family and then likely would have engaged with court astrologers or had a tutor of some type who trained her in the astrology of the time period, a fusion of sort of the Naubachti and Persian tradition, as well as what was emerging at the time period, the sort of fusion with Greek uh, horoscopic astrology, these new techniques around mathematics, particularly the Arabic lots and whatnot, all of it would have been uh, within her training. Okay, and we'll get to one of her contemporaries as a potential person, Solomon Bisher, in just a, a little bit here. But one of the things um, there's a, a poem that survives from her after the death of her husband, and and that kind of implies to me. I don't know if we can take that and imply that she was also literate, like she knew how to read and and to write. She was a woman of of letters in some sense. Yeah, all noble women were were literate, or most noble women were were literate. So she comes from a noble family. Um, but also, again, literacy was highly encouraged, even amongst the sort of working class people. Again, not as literate in the way that we might think of it contemporary, but the average per- more people were literate than we imagined they were, and that was likely a result of the Quran. You know, you had to learn it, you had to memorize it, you had to read it, you have to write it, um, and it, doubly so if you were a noblewoman, because you had to be able to read things like poetry. You had to be able to talk about philosophical discourses. You wanted to debate your colleagues, your husband. Um, Ma'moon, when he ends up marrying her, marries her predominantly because of her learning. There's a very fascinating line that says he's drawn to her because she's highly educated, highly learned. She's lettered. Um, and he's able to hold very intellectual discourses and debates with her. Uh, and she's able to stand in her own uh, as an intellectual giant. And so there is of all indications that she was formally trained, highly literate, and probably well-versed in the intellectual traditions of the time, not just astrology, but philosophy and mathematics and even uh, literature. Brilliant. So that's a good transition point to talk about the marriage and talk about her wedding. So she um, became married to Caliph al-Mamun and, and became queen at one point. And the setup for that is that Baran's father uh, was Al Hassan ibn Saul ibn Nabakht, who um, was somebody who became the the head, the the vizier of Baghdad under Caliph Al Mamun, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So her father was originally uh, an advisor, but he is elevated under Mamun because one, he's from the line of Naubacht. He ends up becoming sort of a vizier. His main position is actually running Baghdad to a certain extent. He's a there's a position where you kind of do administrative duties, the, the sort of city guard, the stipends, and that's what it seems like he was in charge of, the sort of financial administrative components while remaining an important advisor to Mahmoon. And maybe we should set up the um the civil war and how Mahmoon came to power because that's a crucial like piece that leads up to and it's like the wedding to Baran doesn't happen until after the civil war is concluded. So, um, what is the setup? So Baghdad's founded like forty years earlier, before Baran is married, and there's a succession of different caliphs that are in charge and ruling from Baghdad. And um, what there, there was a caliph that died, and then there were two siblings right. um, that got into a fight with each other, basically, right? Yes, yeah, so Harun al-Rashid, who was the founder of the Bayt al-Hikmah that we mentioned, um, had a bit of a difficulty determining who his successor would be. Ma'mun was the son of a Persian courtesan, uh, sort of not his official wife. 
And so there was some controversy about whether he wanted to make Ma'mun Khalif. What he decided was to allow Al-Amin, his older brother, from his official wife, to become Khalif under the promise that Al-Amin would then pass the title on to his brother Ma'mun. That was the original agreement. Okay. Al-Amin and, and, was... And in the meantime, Al-Mamun... Um, has like semi-autonomy over in Khorasan, over right. Persia roughly, where he's doing his own thing while his brother is is caliph and is, is ruling from Baghdad. Exactly. So once again, Khorasan ends up becoming the place of all the troubles, right? Exactly. Mahmoud ends up developing his autonomy there. He's developed really strong support amongst his soldiers. Al-Amin is sort of a, a dilettante caliph. He's fascinatingly not interested in ruling whatsoever. He's also likely gay, so it's very important to kind of recognize the identities of people that that often kind of get forgotten in history. There was a gay khalif, Al-Amin was one of them. So much so, in fact, that his uh, mother was afraid that he would never have children. And so his mother contrived to have all his wives dress as as men, as pages, in the hopes that it would entice him to have some interest in women. Um, but he was a party boy. He just kind of wanted to hang out and drink and hang out with his friend Abu Nuwas, who was writing homoerotic poetry and really kind of enjoy the culture. But the one thing that he ends up doing is that he decides that he's not going to pass on the succession to his much more popular, more straightforward military commander brother, Al-Ma'mun. And, and, and so Ma'mun breaks- is also like an, electional, uh, an intellectual who's over in, in yes. Persia and has, interestingly, one of his advisors is Bronze father, exactly. who is from that Nabokht and that Persian family line of astrologers. Yes. And so the, Ma'mun is developing his reputation as a theologian, as a philosopher, as an intellectual leader, while Al-Amin is kind of having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and he breaks the contract, and that becomes the big turning point. Al-Ma'mun is given the justification to sort of invade and wage war against his brother. And that's it's because he, he had a son, and he decides to, to make his son his exactly. heir to the throne instead of his brother. Yeah, he breaks the contract. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this on to my son. My son is going to be the caliph, not my brother. It's one way also to stick it to his brother, who's a bit of a stick in the mud, according to, to Al-Amin. The battle actually has astrological ramifications as well. Both brothers are advised by astrologers. We don't always know the names of these strolls, but we know that Al-Amin does not listen to his astrologer. His astrologer warns him, don't go to war, the moon is in Scorpio. The moon is in a bad position. And in the Islamic world, the moon was super important for any type of election, but also in natal work. But Al-Amin doesn't listen. On the other hand, Ma'mun, being the wise philosopher that he is and somewhat astrologer, is very careful about his elections, and he wisely listens to astrologers. He waits for the moon to be out of Scorpio, and then he invades Baghdad. Al-Amin is forced to sort of flee. Uh, He ends up getting killed. And then Ma'mun takes over, and Ma'mun is a Virgo, and in typical Virgo fashion, he decides that his entryway has to be perfectly ordered, and every single one of his retinue dresses in all green as they enter into Baghdad, demonstrating the rise of the philosopher king, which was also associated with the sign Virgo in Al-Adra, in, uh, in Arabic or Islamic astrology. Once he establishes himself as Khalif, he then goes about rewarding the people who were loyal to him, the people who supported him. And the family of Naubacht becomes an important way for him to legitimize his claim. He is the son of a Cortesian. He is of Persianate descent. So now the dynasty is shifting. 
It's moving to another power base, this power base in Khorasan. So to shore up that power base, he turns to this ancient noble Persian line, the Naubachs, and that's where he meets Bauran. He's engaged to her, and they end up getting married in this lavish, lavish ceremony. And it was a way of sort of of celebrating her, but also demonstrating that he really prized and 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 valued and appreciated the marriage to Bauran. Yeah, and, and in the ancient world and in this time period, there's no other better way of forming um, bonds and political connections than like the merging of one's families, and that's like a very important political thing yep. at that time. Yep, absolutely. This was a way of ensuring that this ancient Persian line would be would continue to be an ally of the Abbasids, particularly under Al Ma'mun, but also demonstrating to the rest of the world a sense of continuity. I am marrying into an ancient line. I'm not just an outsider. I'm not just some random person. I will continue. There's an element of stability there as well. So women often were an important political um, connection, a way in which developing these alliances. But it's also important to understand that, I mean, here we are, we're talking Queen Bauran, but we keep talking about men. But Bauran herself and many women themselves would have been important political influences on their husbands and on the court themselves. They're not sort of passive recipients of these marriages. They're not sort of, oh, their hand is given and some lineage is established. The queens themselves would have exerted a great deal of influence, and Bauran is a perfect example of this. She goes on to becoming an important influence on Ma'mun and an important political advisor for him. Okay, so Al-Ma'mun, he... Uh reigned, he takes over and starts reigning starting in 813, and his reign lasts for 20 years. He doesn't die until 833, but um, Baran and him are wed in, I think they were married sometime between December of 824 and January of 825, and the festivities lasted for 17 days and were so lavish and extravagant that it became this. their, their wedding became something of a legend in and of itself, right? Right. So the wedding itself is so lavish that the, all the chronicles that we have of Bauran focus on the wedding, from Abu Sa'i, Al-Tabari, all of them focus on it because it was such a massive wedding. There was, a, there was supposed to be a, a candle that weighed like tons that was in this giant candelabra, and it was a demonstration of wealth. Candles were not were quite expensive. These type of lights were very unique. There was this particular moment in which pearls were cast before Bauran as a sort of gift to her, and it was said to be something in the thousands. And uh, Ma'mun demands, in fact, he, there's this great show, he, says, he demands that the pearls be counted. How many pearls are are here? How many are there? And they're like, oh, it's thousands. Some, some other chronicle says it's 5,000. And he says every single one of them for Bauran. So it's a sort of romantic gesture for this wife that he's married. But the wedding ceremony is immense, and it is an indication that Ma'mun wants to establish a great deal of, of continuity, of stability, but also the value that he places in Bauran. We can argue that this was a, a marriage of affection, that while certainly there was a political alliance that was being made here, certainly there was an alliance that was being made with the Naubachs, that he also had deep affection and respect for, for Bauran. The way he talks about Bauran as a deeply educated woman, as a woman that he is attracted to, that he wants to speak to, that he can't wait to get married to, um, indicates that there was there was genuine affection between the two of them, that there was actual, this may have been a love marriage in addition to an arranged political marriage. Okay. Um, and there were like 
special gifts for each of the guests, and people were showered in pearls. And um, she was about eighteen, give or take, at the time that she was. They were met, married, uh, depending on her birth year. Um, and he granted her like three wishes as part on their like wedding day, and and some of what she wished for were certain like political yeah. uh, things that she she wanted to happen. Yeah, the two big political uh, things that she asked for, and she was very clever about this. Ma'moon asks her, and she's very coy at first. And it's actually her grandmother that goes, "No, no, speak up. He is your husband. You have the right to speak to him." And so she asks. She asks for two things. One, she asks for her uncle to be forgiven. Ibrahim, she says, please forgive him. He was on the other side, but forgive him. And she asks for Zubaydah, who is uh, Ma'moon's stepmother, if you will, uh, but asks for Zubaydah to be allowed to make the Hajj pilgrimage. This was very smart on her end. On one end, she's working on the grace of Ma'moon. She's playing to the gift. No Khalif will refuse that. There's a very important aspect to being a Khalif. You must be magnanimous. You must be generous. This is why he's showering her with gifts. He's why he's why he's showering everybody with gifts while people are going away with expensive perfumes and, and jewels and gems. But it's also an incredibly smart political decision on her end. She is creating stability. Rather than seek retribution, rather than allow Ma'moon to go through a process of purging, she's trying to repair and rebuild the fabric of Baghdad society through these for, through these acts. And there's an indication that she will remain an important political influence on Ma'moon throughout his life. It, I would not be surprised if he turned to her for astrological counsel as well, that while he may have had a court astrology, we know that Ma'moon relied on intimate relationships. There was a, a male astrologer, uh, Yahya ibn, uh, Abi ibn Mansur, who was an intimate partner of, of Al-Ma'moon. They were likely lovers, um, but it was also an astrologer, so that he had a court astrologer like Abu Mashar and others that he would, he would engage with, but that he would likely, his like, private counsel involved personal astrologers, like his best friend and lover, um, Abi Abu Mansur, but also his wife. Bauran might have been an astrological consultant uh, and consulted for uh, Ma'moon throughout his life. So there is an indication he relied on her, not just for political advice, but perhaps for philosophical, theological, and even astrological advice. Right. And this is where um, we can transition into our next section, talking about one very famous and influential astrologer that Braun may have had some connection to, and certainly would have been in close proximity to, who is the astrologer Saula bin Bisher, who um, in an episode where I interviewed Ben Dykes about his new translation of some of Saul's work uh, many episodes ago in the past year or two, he said that the charts for Saul seemed to indicate that he was active definitely between 815 and 825. And this is the same time period where we're talking about Baran because uh, Al Mamun starts his reign from 813 all the way until 833, and they're married in uh, what, 825? Is that correct? Yeah, so it, it is. It's tricky. Uh, the dates are rough, always, right? That we're we're engaging. It is possible she likely had some form of interaction with him, but she probably would have been in the harem, which is not accessible to strange men, just to outsiders. The only one who would have access to her would have been the chief eunuch and her husband and her sons, and it is through the chief eunuch as well as a figure known as the Muhanthum. The Muhannathun are sort of what we would consider today non-binary or trans individuals. 
um, who also mediated between the harem and the sort of public sphere, she would have exerted her influence through the Mukhanathun. The Mukhanathun would have been her emissary, um, as well as the chief eunuch. These would have been the connections that she had. She, even though she may have been in the harem, she may she probably had some interactions with Saul. So probably not formalized learning under Saul, but definitely probably have learned what horoscope he casted, or may have even watched some of the work that he did when she was in court with her husband. She may have seen it and may have learned or interacted with in some way, shape, or form with Saul. So there's definitely a connection there. We just don't know how deep the connection is. Yeah, and part of it um, was through, because Saul was employed by her father, Yeah, and um, maybe just a quick biographical note about Saul before we go into that connection, but he um, I had a specific name appellation, but you were clarifying something for me about his background and that he was probably like a Syriac Christian or Zoroastrian who wrote in Arabic. Yeah, so Yahudi means the Jew, or but it also means the Christian. Um, and it was an appellation. And so, what was his name, or what was the name then? The full name? Yahudi. So, Saul ibn Bishr al Yahudi, the Jew, is the okay. sort of the title. Um, and so the people have assumed that Saul was Jewish. There were Jewish astrologers. Mashallah is a prime example of this. Um, and I would even argue Ibn Ezra, to a certain extent, is part of the Islamic tradition. He's engaging with Al-Kindi and Abu Mashar greatly. Um, but Saul was likely a Syriac Christian because Yahudi doesn't always mean a person's religion. It just means the community he is part of. And Yahudi was referred to, um, the Syriac Christians were sometimes called Yahudi. Um, so we, the evidence seems to indicate he was Christian. He was of, of Syriac descent, of, uh, Christian descent, probably of that religious descent, uh, religious community. Um, but later on, he, there's some people who debate maybe he would have been Jewish. We're not sure. We don't know a hundred percent. Not everyone's religious, uh, identities are clarified in the biographical texts, but all indications seem to indicate Syriac Christian as far as I can tell. Okay, so what we can say is that he wrote a number of astrological texts in Arabic that became highly, highly influential in the later astrological tradition, all the way as late as authors like William Lilly in the 17th century are still citing Saul and drawing on his work. And uh, in the episode I did last summer with Martin Ganston on the Tajika tradition uh, from India, where some um, Arabic and Persian tra- texts were translated into Sanskrit and then started a, a new tra- tradition of astrology there in India that lasted for many centuries. Martin said that um, one of the core texts that he thinks started that, that was translated, was a work of Saul ibn Bishr that was mm-hmm. eventually got translated into Sanskrit. So Saul became, at least in later times, a very highly influential astrologer, and he um, originally was said to have worked for the governor of Khorasan, right. uh, but then later Saul came to work for Baran's father in Baghdad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Martin Ganson's work here is really fascinating. I think that I'm most excited about what he's doing because that connection. I mean, we've seen the European connection, right? Zale, we we were it's there, mm-hmm. but the connection to Tajika that is like groundbreaking stuff. I saw that particular episode and his, his translation of the Jewel of Oh, what is it called? The jewel of something. The translation he did of the work on Tajika is just amazing. So if the, if there's a connection to to Saul, I wouldn't doubt it. He does become, if Mashallah is the sort of beginning of the entryway of Persianate astrology into the Islamic world, the fusion. Saul represents that middle ground. 
He becomes the text that everyone is referring to. He becomes the text that most astrologers are engaging with. Saul himself is is, is a prolific writer. The, the sort of three big prolific writers are, mashallah, Saul, and Abu Masher. These three leave a lot for us. And not only do they leave a lot, but they are also characteristic of the three stages of astrology in the Islamic world. The beginning stages with, mashallah, this middle stage in which we really see for example, interrogational astrology really comes into its own under Saul. Mashallah lays out the rules, but man, does Saul take it to another level. And then we see it with Abu Mashar as a sort of finalization of Islamizing all of the astrology, of really bringing it into an Islamic cosmology and then transmitting it for, for a thousand years after him. So Saul is an important figure and has a connection to the Naubachs. He may not have had formal education of the Naubachs. He may not have learned from them, but he is politically aligned with them through Bauran's father. And, and that's a really good point and, and might be relevant later to Bauran's story in terms of Saul, I agree, really being one of the first most foundational authors for Horary. And so much of the later Horary tradition flows from this sort of foundation that Saul sets up in the early Ninth century, um, even though we have some of that with, you know, Masha Allah and his texts like on reception, but Saul is really formalizes the Hori tradition in a way that it, it almost didn't seem to exist prior to that time. Um, so, so Saul comes to work for Baran's father in Baghdad, and if he's active, circa eight fifteen through eight twenty five, there's just this interesting parallel where. He would have been alive and he would have been practicing in a lot of his intellectual activity and work for the, you know, political work for the rulers at the time would have been in parallel with Baran growing up and becoming an adult and, and eventually getting married to um, Al Mamun at that same time period. So it's just fascinating for me and it provides some insight, understanding the world of the astrologers, seeing the, these two parallel lives of these two figures line up in this way. Yeah, this is one of the beauties of history is being able to see that maybe these two people intersected, right? right. That maybe they had some form of connection. I yeah. mean, I, I often joke, what are the historians of, you know, a hundred years from now gonna write about us? Did someone have a Tinder connection or a or a what a bumble connection? I don't even know what the hell they're called, right? But like how do you create those? These people were linked some way, shape, or form. It's like finding out that someone follows someone on Instagram or TikTok or whatnot. This is what history is. It's a way of sort of working these with these fragments and seeing if we can recreate their lives. And I think we can be reasonably sure that these two people intersected at some point. They overlapped in some point. They may have even interacted. Maybe not as deeply as as we hope, but certainly there would have been a connection. Yeah, and at least surely in terms of having a shared connection where we can pinpoint that their father was somebody where we know both of them were interacting with Baran's father versus in the second century, for example, there's this really tantalizing overlap of like the timelines of Claudius Ptolemy and Vadius Valens both probably being in Alexandria in the mid-second century, but not referencing each other. And we have no idea if they ever Knew each other, like ever passed each other on the streets, and they very well may not have, because it's sort of like the equivalent of two people who live in New York right now, and they they may never come across each other. But in this instance, it's a little different with Baran because of that shared connection through her father. Exactly. So, 
Yeah, so that leads us to um, Baron's later life and the astrological legend that specifically ties her in more closely with not just being from an astrological family, but potentially practicing and knowing astrology herself. So um, after she's married, um, there may have been some issues with her bearing children, and there's no heirs that are recorded coming from those two. And I know Kenneth Johnson talked about this a little bit, and I wasn't sure what his sources were for this, if this may have created some tension with Al-Mamun because he needed an heir. Um, do you know anything about that or, or what the deal is there? Yeah, we don't think she had any children, but I don't I don't think it would have caused any real tensions. They um, There wasn't the same sort of anxiety that if we don't have an heir, that wife is somehow got to be discarded, mostly because uh, Khalifs were polygamous. Okay. They had multiple wives, they had concubines, they had consorts. And so there wasn't really any, in fact, Mahmoun himself is the son of, of a courtesan or, or a concubine of some sort. Um, so yeah, there, I don't think it would have caused real issues. It just means he would have had the lineage passes on to some other. There isn't ever an instance of, for example, a, 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 a queen can't have a child and therefore she's sort of discarded. We know that Bauran remains an important part of Mahmoun's life because he's tr she's traveling with him to battles. You don't get to travel <laughs> to battles unless you're a very important person. Um, the Khalifs traveled with their court, but taking his wife there and likely she would have consulted with these various battles, given him advice, we know that there is some reference that she gave advice around battles. Uh, and she remains a privileged position in the court even after his death. So she doesn't seem to have made any real loss uh, or, or any, there was no real tension there. But there is likely no children because the line doesn't follow Bauran. Okay. And so, so yeah, so she accompanied him on a military exposition against the Byzantine Empire, the Greek speaking empire that's still up in like parts of, of Turkey and that sort of area. And um, and he's also going out and has astrologers as part of his entourage and his military thing. So she's obviously going to have some crossover there with whoever. Do you know who the chief advisor or astrologer was to Al Mamun? Do we have a name? For Mamun that? has several um, astrologers. Okay. I'm not sure who would have been with him during the battles. I know that at one point he is dealing with Abu Mashar, if I'm not mistaken. Um, a little bit later in his life. So it's possible Abu Mashur is involved in some of I know Abu Mashur is involved in the Zand revolt, um, which is is kind of a more the successor of Al Ma'mun. So it's possible, but we don't know who the, the specific court is. He's had several. One that would have accompanied him, that would have been the the probably his main advisor, not specifically the court astrologer. But um, the person who would have advised him about you know various battles would have been um, Abi ibn uh, Mansur. Ibi, Abi ibn Mansur was his basically his best friend, his lover, and his astrologer most of his life, and he would have gone with him through the battles. In fact, Abi ibn Mansur gets paid by Ma'mun to do the first real major study on eclipses, lunar eclipses. Um, and so he would have been there. I don't know if he was the official astrologer, though. That's that's less clear. Okay. Um, and there's others like um, I know Umar ibn Farrakhan al Tabari was yeah. said to have di died somewhere around 815, and he's he translates 
Dorotheus from Persian, the Persian translation into Arabic sometime in the early like ninth century or so. Yeah. Al-Tabari isn't a court astro- full-on court astrologer, though. Mm. He works predominantly as a translator. He is an advisor. We okay. know he's cast some horoscopes for the Khalif, but he's not a he's not the main court astrologer. He predominantly is a is a translator and a, a teacher. So his role okay. is more in the Bayt al Hikmah. He's much more engaged in the intellectual tradition. He is being paid by the Khalif, and he's being paid quite handsomely. But it was it was he was never had the same influence as say a court astrologer does. Sure. I guess I was just trying to think what other astrologers are active in yeah. that time in the early ninth century. So we've got and, and what texts were being translated. So we have right. him translating Dorotheus yes. and um the some Persian version of Valens is translated around this time. Yes. The Dorotheus text probably is the most important text that is being translated. Hands down. I know uh, uh, history of astronomy, we often talk Ptolemy, 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 but I, I do think Ptolemy gets a little bit over overblown. He's made too big too bigger. Uh, yes, they're dealing with his text, Tetrabiblios, they're they're absolutely writing about it and commenting. But the text that they are deeply influenced by is Dorotheus. In fact, if I were to say the astrology of the Islamic world, where it's Hellenistic sources, it's Dorotheus. From the unique characteristics, there are some very unique characteristics for uh, in Islamic astrology, and one of them is the divisions of the zodiac. They give very clear breakdowns, first the faces, the terms, the ninth part, and the twelfth part. The Dodecademoria, that's they're drawing on Dorotheus. They even say they are. Why is Dorothea says, check the 12th part, double check the 12th part. So they're constantly, the only difference is that they translate Dorotheus, they take his methods, and then they expand it. So for example, Abu Mashar, who relies heavily on Dorotheus, um, gives delineations of the 12th parts. In fact, I'm working on a translation of the 12th parts of the Ascendant. He gives all of them. He goes, if the 12th part is in Virgo, it means this, 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 and this for a person's life. That is Dorotheus. That's Dorotheus's influence that is just then expanded in the Islamic tradition. Right. So Dorotheus is like the main influence for natal. He's he's definitely the main influence for electional. Absolutely. Um, and then even some of his electional stuff is reinterpreted as rules for horary. So it even ends up influencing a lot of the interpretations in the early horary tradition. Yep. Yep. Al Tabri's translation of Dorotheus is not very good. Unfortunately, okay. it's not the best translation, but we know that they were they were engaging with with Dorothea. We know Mashallah at one point also translates Dorotheus, that there is a translation from him and it's circulating around. So it would have been it would not have been unlikely that she would have read Dorotheus, that she would have had access to that translation, either through Saul or through others who were translating it at the time. The methods that she ends up demonstrating later on indicate that she would have been well versed in the Islamic astrology of the time, which was indebted to Dorotheus. Okay, brilliant. I love that connection. We're getting we're getting into some real connections and interesting stuff here. So, um, so Bran is married to Al Mamun for about twenty years, but yeah. he sadly uh, dies in eight thirty three, a bit prematurely, from something like food poisoning while he's out on a military expo- ex- yeah. uh, expedition, and she's actually there with him when he dies. Yeah, he eats some type of fruit. We don't know what it was, but mm. he asks for some type of fruit or something to be given to him from the trees. He eats it, and he doesn't end up sitting well with him. <laughs> Somebody run source said like dates or something like that. Yeah, it was some. It might have been dates. It might have been some. Type, we know it's some type of fruit, some type of stone fruit of some sort was mm. quite popular, and it just didn't sit with him. And it, 
That's the end uh, of oh, Mom man. Moon. That's rough. <laughs> a date took him out. Yeah, uh, that is one of the, you know, the, there's all these funny like delineations that sometimes happen in ancient astrological authors, like weird deaths, like the native will be torn apart by dogs. And you're like, yeah. why is that relevant? Or how could that ever happen? But then occasionally, like, there will be those really weird stories still, even in modern times, of like a native that accidentally right. got e- eaten by a dog or something. It's like when you read those random, really weird rules in America, don't shove a moose out of an airplane as an, as an Alaskan law. It lets you know somebody's shoved a right. moose out of an airplane. So when they tell you, you know, some, you know, this, the native might be torn by dogs, some poor hapless person yeah. was torn by dogs at some point. Right. There's a reason that rule exists. So exactly. he ate some, f- some fruit or something and he was poisoned and passed away. Um, so, you know, Braun lives for another 50 years, and this seems to have affected her pretty seriously. I found this one poem that she was said to have written after he died, um, which was actually really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it comes from a translation that I just picked up of Ibn al Sai, uh, titled The Consorts of the Caliphs, Women yeah, in the Court of Baghdad. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's so it's at a, yeah, there's a bunch of authors associated with it. But here's the um, actual poem from Braun, and part of it says, uh, Weep my eyes, the caliph has passed on, and I'm a captive to melancholy. Once I was the one who ravaged fate, now he's gone, fate ravages me, mm-hmm. uh, which is just really, you know, beautiful. I'm sure it's even more beautiful than the actual Arabic. Because um, you always lose something with poetry when it's translated, but that's still, you know, that death and that loss of her husband, like you were saying earlier, they probably did. It probably wasn't just a political arranged marriage, but it was some actual, perhaps even intellectual or other emotional connection that they shared that was a, a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if all indications point to her becoming a very close companion for Mahmoud. They were intellectual equals. They would have debated philosophy. They would have been talking about battle strategies. She would have advised him. And so there's a deep affection there, both in the initial marriage, but even by the end. And so by all indications, I mean, no marriage is perfect, but it was probably a happy marriage, a happy union between the two, not just a sort of convenient one, but one where there was true affection between these two people. Okay. So- Interestingly, she lives to be about 7980, so she's only what in her 30s at this point because she lives for another 30 or yeah. another 50 years. Yeah. Um so after this point there's a series of events but her father ends up falling out of power and ends up falling out of favor with the next ca- caliph. Yeah. And um Baran's own lands and estates end up being uh, confiscated by the next caliph's new vizier who's kind of a I don't know if you can say he's a sketchy figure, but he has yeah, he's, a little, he's, de- he's shady. Okay, good. I, I wasn't sure. Like he sounds yeah. like um, I don't know if you can make the analogy, but if if uh, you know, in like Aladdin and like Disney, he sounds like a Jafar, like a Jafar. Type, type character. <laughs> um, was the image that I have because he said that this he was the inventor of like the Iron Maiden like torture device or something like that. Yeah, he's a uh, he's sketchy. He's corrupt. We know okay. he was corrupt. He's confiscated people's lands and monies. He was a brutal dude, not in any way, shape, or form a good guy. Okay, so so Braun falls afoul of him, and mm-hmm. her father 
loses? Why did he lose power and influence? Who who is the next caliph? I guess I should ask. So first. the next caliph is Mutasim, and Mutasim uh, is really trying to shift the power balance. He wants to bring in his people. He wants to bring in the people that are going to support him, and he's being advised by others. Um, Bauron isn't fully out of favor. She remains an esteemed person. She ends up in her own sort of palace, but she sort of lives in retirement. She lives sort of away, secluded from courtly life. She's not part of the court. Her father is the one that takes a serious tumble. Her father ends up kind of butting heads with the vizier um, of Al-Mutazim, and Mutazim just doesn't like um, her father in any way, Shemal Hassan. And so he ends up kind of on the outskirts of society. He's still quite wealthy, he's still well off, but he no longer has access to power. This was not uncommon. Even astrologers faced the whims of the Khalif. Mutasim himself was not a friendly dude. He was quite harsh. In fact, Abu Mashur has a very famous uh, experience with Mutasim. Abu Mashur, uh, Mutasim goes to Abu Mashur and tests him and says, tell me uh, what is going to happen. Cast this sort of interrogational chart. And Abu Mashar does, but the result is not a good result. And so he tells the Khalif, and the Khalif doesn't like it. But Abu Mashar, being the brilliant astrologer that he is, ends up being right. So the unfavorable thing turns out to be true, and so Al-Mutasim has him flogged. He has Abu Mashar beat, and this is the court astrologer. He sh- should be in a cushy position, but even Abu Mashar is on the sort of rocks with Mutasim. Uh, and Abu and, uh, Abu Mashar gives a very funny sort of response. He says, I hit the mark, so I got hit. Um, nice. As a way of demonstrating that, yeah, I'm good, but even I get my ass beat every once in a while. Right. Yeah, so um, that is a real shift. And the time period for his reign for yeah. the caliph is 833 through 842. Yeah. And so this is where... Um, things get kind of interesting because Bronze father's out of power. She's kind of in retirement. She's off in her palace in like the east part, the older part of Baghdad or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So and- she's a sort of the way the Baghdad is designed. There's a series of palaces that they can move around in, and she's in one of those palaces, sort of living in retirement. Okay. And this is where it's at this point in her life, at some point during uh, the reign of this new caliph, that the astrological legend is preserved um, by, uh, there's at least one source, the 13th century historian, but there may be two sources, right? Yeah, so Ibn Taus gives a reference to the predictions. He's actually the he has a compendium of predictions of astrological predictions. He gives a series of them, like oh, so and so astrologer predicted this, and so and so astrologer predicted that. And then George Saliba, in his in his seminal in his brilliant article, I should say, or germinal. I'm trying to stop using that word. The germinal work, um, the role of the astrologer in medieval Islamic society or medieval Abbasid society, um, also mentions Khalaka as, as a reference to it. So there's two sources there, two name sources. And then there's a third anonymous text that is a series of sort of prophecies that also mentions it. So likely, at the very least, after her death, this legend is attributed to her. So it's very possible that she, she gave the prediction. Okay, so it has it's attested pretty well. So I, I want to read it from Saliba's synopsis because he does it in a very short and very good fashion, and then we can talk about it from there. And this is from the article that you just mentioned. But 
It says the last example of a Tassil is reported about the only female astrologer as a historical personality that we know of to date. Baran, the daughter of Al Hassan ibn Saul ibn Nabat, and the wife of Al Mamun, quote, used to lift the astrolabe and look at the horoscope of the caliph Al Mutasim. And that's a quote from one of the actual um, historical texts saying that Braun used to lift the astrolabe and look at the horoscope of the current caliph who had taken over after her husband died. So um, he goes on, Saliba goes on and says, One day she noticed that a crisis was about to befall the caliph through a wooden instrument. She sent her father, Al Hassan, who had fallen out of favor with the caliph, to the court with the ominous news. At the appointed time, every precaution was taken so that the caliph would not come near any wood. When his servant brought him his comb and toothpicks, Al-Hassan ordered the servant to use them before offering them to the caliph. As soon as he did, his head swelled up and he fell dead. Needless to say, Al-Hassan was then taken back into the service of the caliph as a reward, and Baran was allowed to repossess her villages and estates that Ibn al-Zayat, the vizier of Mutasim, had confiscated from her. So this is sort of in a condensed version of the legend that Baran was actually involved in somehow um, thwarting an assassination attempt on the current king, the current caliph, uh, through astrological means of some sort. Basically, is is the gist of the the story or the legend? Yeah, we should say here, uh, and George Saliba is brilliant scholar and I'm at the risk of correcting him um uh, he she is not the only named female astrologer she's the first named female astrologer the earliest example that we have in the Islamic world but Rehana Biruni's paramour is also an astrologer very famously he dedicates his book the elements of astrology to her it, in the Latin, unfortunately, they skip the end portion of it. The end portion of the text is questions from her. She's an astrologer asking questions about how to practice astrology. That's but, really interesting because he comes off, and in some, I think, Saliba's like analysis of Alberuni as more of a skeptic of astrology. That's like reluctantly writing that intro to astrology text. Is that your take as well, or what's the not truth at all. of that? No. Okay. So this is this is a bit dated, and and Saliba's brilliant again, but. We've updated our understanding because we've kind of the history of astrology often, particularly the early history of astrology, falls into a very orientalist framework of rationality and science versus the superstition of astrology. And Al-Biruni, who's the scientist, couldn't possibly have believed in astrology. Al-Biruni is a court astrologer. He is an astrologer. He doesn't do it reluctantly. He's a true believer of astrology. He believes it's a genuine science. The difference is that Al-Biruni is deeply critical of other astrologers. He's not critical of astrology. Mm. He's critical of other astrologers who he sees as some of them being charlatans and not good at the sort of mathematics and science portion of it. We see this with his reflections of Abu Masher. He is deeply indebted to Abu Masher, but he's constantly criticizing Abu Masher because Abu Masher sucked at math. So Al-Biruni is much more about aligning it with the sort of mathematics of the time period. But he doesn't reject astrology. He practices astrology up until his very last day. He's a court astrologer, and he writes the probably the most important medieval or one of the most important medieval texts on how to practice astrology for a female astrologer, from a woman astrologer, a princess known as Rehana, who herself would have been an astrologer. So Bauron is the first, but there are others. There's a third Zulema, a North African queen 
probably of Berber or Amazigh descent, who's also mentioned, but we don't, I don't have the primary sources for her, only secondary. So I've got to track that down a little bit. But there are other ones. So th- this is where Saliba is a little bit um, off. But the story itself is very interesting. It tells us a lot about Balran and the knowledge she might have had and the things that she was able to kind of do or at least was attributed to her because of her astrological knowledge. Yeah, and one and one thing before we move back to that really quickly I wanted to mention because it ties into earlier was just you mentioning Al-Biruni and his views on other astrologers and criticisms. One of the things that comes up is the social stratification of the different astrologers and that there's very many different levels. A lot of the ones we're talking about are like astrologers at the very top of the social hierarchy who are mm-hmm. you know direct advisors to the caliph right. or to the king, but there were many like there's a middle tier and there was also a lower tier of like the the street astrologers that were literally practicing on the streets, right? Yep, absolutely. So there's astrology is deeply, deeply popular. As I've mentioned, this is not just a matter of some elites who are interested in astrology. Astrology is woven into the very fabric of medieval Islamic society. Everybody is paying attention to where the moon is. Everyone's paying attention to where Venus is. They're conceiving based off of the, the astrology. They're planning their weddings. They're planning their battles. They're doing all of it. And everybody has access at different levels. There are street astrologers who practice on the corners. Every sort of future law that we'll see that sort of restricts astrology is only dealing with street astrologers. And it never bans astrology. It just sort of regulates it. Then there's sort of middle-tier astrologers who are the astrologers for governors and local emirs. Al-Biruni is an example of one of these. He was working for a Persian, a Turco-Persian dynasty in, in Khorasan. And then you have the sort of court astrologers. But the problem is that the history of astrology often gets shaped by our modern understandings or colonial modernity's understanding of science. The rationality and superstition, right? These are the two tiers. And, and, and that leads to some kind of uncomfortable, weird, and awkward conclusions. Al-Kindi is another example of this. Al-Kindi is quite critical of, of astrologers, and, and so is Al-Rajal. But Al-Kindi completely, you know, there's medieval texts about him in astrology, but if you ask modern philosophers about Al-Kindi, they only focus on his philosophy. They don't talk about Al-Kindi as the astrologer, even though it's a very important part of him. Al-Rajal is another one. Al-Rajal, for the longest time, we thought was just, was just referred to as an astronomer, even though he writes... Uh, these very important astrological treatises. And the, the reason for this is that he criticizes Abu Masher. He actually has a very funny line where he says he prefers Al-Kindi because Abu Mashar will leave you uh, sleepless at night and confused. And anyone who's ever read the French philosopher Derrida can probably sympathize with that experience. But because of that sort of uh, criticism of Abu Masher and other astrologers, there's an assumption that Al-Rajal was an astronomer, not an astrologer. In reality, these were the same position. Astronomers okay. were astrologers. And so yeah. that's, that's where Al-Biruni is. And that's funny in that criticism of Abu Mashar. Another criticism of him was that he was very long-winded and his texts were sometimes very long. And so that was actually what Al-Kabizi set out to do with his introduction was kind of like shorten an introduction to astrology and shorten Abu Mashar's greater introduction. But then that ties in because Al-Kabizi also is one of the authors of a surviving test of astrologers that was supposed to be given to like if you wanted to be the the caliph's astrologer, you had to take this test, and these are the things that you needed to know in order to standardize what it took to be like a good astrologer. And that's some of what we're seeing in here that exists, I think, in any different time period of astrology is the interfighting among astrologers or the competition for 
who knows the most or who is the best at what they do and what you should know in order to be considered like a professional astrologer versus um, what they look down as like a, a charlatan or a street level astrologer or what have you. Yeah. And it's also an indication, again, of the formalized training that would have existed for an astrologer. You need to pass it. Uh, this system is is not unique to astrology in the medieval Islamic world. It's all learning. It's known as the ijaza system. It means licensing. To demonstrate that you have learned something, you must pass a particular series of tests. In many ways, some have argued that that is the birth of our modern degree system, right? You pass a sort of exit exam, and then you get a degree. It's more complicated than that, obviously. There's no real transmission. But the, the astrology would have had a formal component to this. And this indicates to us also that Bauran likely would have had formal education, and it was very likely that she herself would have had taken this examination at some point or demonstrated because the technique that she uses here or what we can surmise is her techniques all indicate not just a formal level of learning but also indicate that at some point she would have put that learning into practice and have been examined therefore she's able to advise and consult you know and her predictions are taken seriously she's just not she's not a dilettante or an amateur she is an expert okay um, yeah, I mean, I hope at some point I'd like to see a translation of that work of Alcabezi because I'm very curious what um, what the test was and what was considered to be required knowledge for an astrologer to to serve at the highest levels. And there's also another translation that I came across of Al Tawuz, I think, which sounds like it has a lot of anecdotes from different astrologers and the different stratifications of society and anecdotes about the street-level astrologers versus mid-tier versus higher-tier ones. Ibn Taus, is that who you mean? Yeah, that's yeah, the one. Ibn Taus, yeah, he is, he's probably one of the better sources when it comes to uh, stories about astrologers. He's also the one that records the most predictions. There's all sorts of fascinating predictions about death and people doing all sorts of interesting things about it, and Ibn Taus is the one that records uh, a great deal of them. We do know how what the examinations did look like. They involved demonstrating the theoretical frameworks of astrology, like some basic stuff, what does Mercury govern and stuff, but also like, can you find this lost object? If mm. there's a thief, how do you uncover their name? There's a whole tradition of uncovering names using the lunar mansions um, that involve you know letters associated with the lunar mansions. So there, the examination was pretty, pretty intense. Okay. Um, so the crucial sentence, though, in there was that she she used she used to lift the astrolabe to look at the horoscope of the caliph. So she's actively has the birth chart. She knows the birth chart through whatever sources um, she has, and she's actively studying his birth chart on a regular basis, and perhaps using other forms of astrology like electional or inceptional astrology which where you're looking at the you know different dates and times or even horary astrology where you're casting a chart for the moment of a question yeah. which an astrolabe would be useful for in terms of determining the exact um, rising sign or the ascendant at a specific moment in time um, that's one of the reasons I in the illustration um, had a, a illustrate hired an illustrator to illustrate the cover art for this episode which is just sort of a you know, fantasized version of yeah of Baran, you know, examining an astrolabe, which mm -hmm. astrolabes were very important and became one of like the characteristic pieces of equipment that astrologers used in this time period, right? Yeah. So this this particular reference here tells us a, a lot. It's small, but it's a lot. And this is what historians do: we take a fragment and we try to pull as much as we can from it, squeeze as much detail as possible. Firstly, it tells us that. Um, kind of contrary to the way we might understand contemporary astrology, they are not looking at one chart. 
mm. they're looking at multiple charts. Right. We know that at minimum from, for example, the practices of Abu Masha, that they're probably looking at about three or four charts. They're looking at the natal chart, which is the sort of root it's referred to. They're looking at the tahawil, which is the revolution chart. This is the breakdown by year. They're solar, looking, solar return chart. Yeah, the solar return chart. They're looking at the, the at the tasayil chart or tasayir chart, which is probably um, uh, the word is uh, perfection, the perfection chart. Annual and perfection. they're looking at the zij, which is a uh, table of some sort, so an ephemeris, if you will. So they're taking all of those into consideration. And then, of course, the astrolabe is used to deal with things like transits and what's going on right then and there. So she was likely using all of these charts in order to determine what was happening. So there would have been the qat technique here. The reference of the qat is very significant. And the qat means, yeah, that's an astrolabe right there. So there's an astrolabe just for, for those quick, I wish I had brought mine. I left mine in my uh, work office. I could have totally shown you. When I teach my class on this, we actually play around with the astrolabes. It's really quite quite fun to to work with them. So, in, for those not familiar, what what can you do with an astrolabe? What can you calculate? Yeah, so an astrolabe allows you to calculate the exact position of the stars. It's used predominantly for the ascendant. The ascendant is the most important piece for the Islamic astrologers and for all I think traditional astrologers. Still, it is crucial. It's also used to understand what stars are rising, what wandering stars are rising at that particular time. It's used as both a mathematic device, a mathematical device, a sort of calculation device, as well as an observation device, something that you actually hold up to your eyes and measure. And for centuries after, it'll be used for navigation predominantly, but astrologers were also using it. So it's so one of like the main tools. So this is like advanced technology. This is Very. like the equivalent of like you're pulling out your smartphone and looking up yep. your astrological chart at the moment. Like you could do that basically yep. with this device. Yep, it is an advanced technology that's being used and will remain in use for roughly about a thousand years after its invention. I mean, mm. I think we still have evidence of it in the 19th century. People were using astrolabes. Right. Okay. So, and what is the crucial? There's a crucial word that Saliba mentions that's yes. used in there, which is he translates as crisis. But what is the actual term? Yeah, the word is cut. It doesn't mean crisis. It means cut or cutting or something that's being severed. The mm. cut is a very important technique. It's part of a series of length of life techniques that are used. Again, drawing very heavily from Hellenistic astrology that involves looking at the helage, that is the the giver of life. But then determining what's known as the killing planet, the mm. planet that is going to cause death. And Abu Mesher gives some very clear indications of how to do this. It involves figuring out the victor of death, usually looking at the eighth house. But there's also other ways of doing it. The lot of death, the sahim al-mut, the lot of death, which also gets translated into the Latin pars mortis. It's there. Mm. Not used as much, but it's still there in the Latin tradition, um, which if I'm not mistaken is... Moon, the distance from Moon to Mars projected then from Saturn is one of the formulas that's given for it. Mm -hmm. Once this is determined, that planet is the killing planet, Mars, right? Saturn. The Moon could also be a killing planet, interesting enough. There's a whole other story we can talk about, about the mm -hmm. Moon as a killing planet. But she would have then determined, okay, this is the killing planet, the planet that would cause illness, harm, and damage to the Khalif. She would have then compared it to the Tahawil chart, that is the solar revolution chart. Mm. The fact that she's checking it daily indicates that she's looking at transits. She's right. trying to find out what is going on. And this is where they struggled. Transits were difficult. 
Um, they couldn't always see when an ingress was happening. And so they relied on tables. They relied on the astrolabe. And so they had a series of sort of canonical tables, these zizhas that they would rely on to tell them, okay, 60 years from now, Mars will be here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so she would have used all of this to determine what is going to happen. If, say, for example, the killing planet was the moon, we'll say, right? Mm-hmm. She then would have noticed the trend, the movement of the moon, the aspects to the moon. Um, and that would have allowed her to come to the conclusion that there is some type of harm from a wooden object. We can even go further by saying that whatever planet it was, it was probably in Capricorn, mm-hmm. which is an indication Capricorn rules over lead and wood. Wood mm-hmm. is one of the connections of, of Capricorn as well as various instruments uh, that we find in Al-Rajal and, and other texts. I think Al-Biruni also gives it as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so Capricorn, and Capricorn also governs plots of some sort. So we can sort of pull as much detail from this. And from there, she advises her father, hey, the Khalif is in danger from a wooden object. It's going to happen when the moon is in Capricorn in a month or so, in a week or so, or in a day or so, or whatever it is. And her father intervenes and as a result is, is rewarded because she does save the Khalif's life. All of this indicates just the level of sophistication that Bauran would have had. The lot of death, is not an easy technique. Parsmutis is a difficult technique. If she's using the lot of death or if she's using the victor of death, that involves a level of calculation. It also involves something known as hukum, meaning judgment. Hmm. This is the what today we might consider... I know sometimes people talk about intuition when it comes to astrology. For the medieval Islamic astrologer, it's not intuition, it's judgment. And judgment is a faculty. It's something that is trained over time. The best way to compare it to is to a craftsman that knows how to carve a wood just by feeling it. Right. Or is able to touch a stone and knows where it'll crack if it strikes or where it'll break. It's about it's this faculty that is developed. And so there is an element of sort of measuring and judging which of these planets would have been the most dangerous, which of these planets would have caused harm, that takes an extreme level of learning. This is not an amateur astrologer. This is an expert astrologer who has been formally trained, who's able to apply that judgment, demonstrate advanced calculation techniques, taking the, if it's the lot of death, taking the distance between planets and then projecting it from there, and is demonstrating facility with the advanced technology of the time period, the astrolabe. Yeah, and that makes me think it's it's something that is not just book learning, but it's something that can only be mastered from years of practice and experience. And I know, for example, Lee Lehman in her book, the, she titled it The Martial Art of Horary Astrology, likens it to learning something like a martial art or something where initially you just start with learning stances and you just Sort of woodenly recreate what you're you're taught, but over a period of years of repetition and through um, repeated usage and um, applying yourself over an extended period of time, eventually it becomes something that's ingrained in you that just sort of flows as a result of your your mastery of the subject. And that's sort of what comes to mind when you you say that. Absolutely, and this is the reason why I believe that Bauran likely consulted Matmon. The ability to make that judgment indicates that she had practiced this, not mm-hmm. casually, but formally in some type of setting. So if the story holds, then the reality is that one of the court astrologers and main astrologers of the Abbasid time period was Bauran. She was the one guiding events with Mahmoud. She likely had a huge influence, a much larger influence than the biographers 
give credit to, and it's likely because of this technique. This technique is very advanced, and it only comes from years and years of really kind of plying her craft. Yeah, is she truly then? There's a snare. We're, we're truly talking about an astrologer queen at this point yep. um, in history, which is a really fascinating thing to, to think about in the larger historical context, not just the first woman that we know of who, who practiced or knew astrology by name, but potentially one of the most eminent ones in, in history, potentially. The only other one I can think maybe on that level, I mean, there's like Queen Elizabeth, who was consulting with astrologers at different times in the whatever century, but maybe like Nancy Reagan or something, who was like the wife uh, of yes. Ron- Ronald Reagan and their interest in astrology and use of astrology in the White House or something like that, in terms of, but that's not even, she's still, yeah. Anyway, so, um, and back to your point about the complicatedness of this technique, determining the planet, planet that was the master of the nativity or the predominator in Hellenistic astrology. For the purpose of the length of life technique and also some of the subsequent debates about the length of life technique is one of the most hotly contested and was said to be one of the most difficult things in ancient astrology to do, the, the technique to actually determine either the length that somebody would live or to determine when a person might reach a crisis that could be a period where health and physical vitality was threatened so that the person could Exit their life at that point in time, or could have a significant health crisis. And I don't think there's any technique that more ink was spilt over in terms of trying to figure out how to make that work than that specific um, thing that's dealt with. And like Ptolemy dealt with it, and Valens dealt with it, and just about every ancient astrologer eventually addressed this primary t- this topic. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's the primary and the first thing that the astrologers in the medieval Islamic world are learning as well. It's about learning who the master of the nativity, the helage. These are the kind of crucial calculations. There is no horoscope without it. We talk about the ascendant. The ascendant is very important, but you've got to be able to identify right after the ascendant, this giver of life. And from that springs everything. All the kind of major predictions come from that. And it also ties in then these different charts. You're looking at the natal chart, the yearly chart all kind of tied into one another. It's also what makes transits, gives them their significations, right? It's why transits become important. Mercury moving through Gemini isn't going to have the same effect on everybody, right? All transits don't have the same effect, and it's going to be that crucial point that will kind of tie everything together. And the fact that she's able to do this technique indicates, again, that she's had formal learning. She's probably reading these texts. She's probably engaging these texts. She's probably very familiar with Dorotheus's and his rules about how to locate the helage, how to locate the uh, giver of life. And even the terms are very important. Who is the term ruler of the giver of life is a very important technique. And she would have been aware of this, right? So she's working not just with the zodiac, but the calculated divisions of the zodiac. She's looking at the terms. She's looking at the Dodecotomoria. She's looking at the ninth part. She's looking at the faces. Again, indicating a high level of sophistication as an astrologer. And as as sophisticated as she is, what it tells us more broadly about Islamic astrology is that it is interwoven throughout society. That this isn't a case of one person consulting. I mean, attributing astrology to a queen is not a minor act. 
Mm. It's an indication of how prestigious astrology was and how it will remain for about a thousand years in the Islamic world or so. And Bauran is that point. She's a really great example of how important astrology was to the medieval Islamic societies, but also the prestige that was associated with this. She is a woman of learning, and she's able to put that learning into practice. Right, and a woman of, of education and of letters and poetry, but also of science and of this, what was kind of like an advanced technology that could give you information that you shouldn't otherwise be able to have. And sometimes that was applied to things like medicine to do things like we do in modern times with x-rays as a diagnostic tool, but other times was used to provide sort of um, information about a situation that otherwise you shouldn't be able to know about through this um, this strange sort of system or, or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the fact that she was a person who wrote poetry but also practiced astrology is a, is a further indication that we have a very holistic understanding of knowledge here. Astrology is not a separate field. Astrology is interwoven with all of all of these different fields. Just as the astrologer is not, for example, a natal astrologer versus a, a world a mundane astrologer, I think is the word now, mundane astrologer. They're not separated. They're trained in all of that because you have to interweave it. If you're doing a natal prediction, you're also taking into consideration what fardar, the state is in. You're taking into consideration which period, which daur it's in, which is these these massive planetary periods. You're taking into consideration where in the great conjunction you are. Are you in the greater conjunction, the middle conjunction? Or, so you're kind of work here, as you noted earlier. You're doing electional work as you're kind of reading the natal chart. So all of that is interwoven to one another. But astrology also is linked to these other sites of knowledge. It's not something separate. If you're an astrologer, you're a historian. Mashallah is a historian. Abu Mashar is a historian. They're putting forth universalist theories through astrology. In fact, I joke that if you want to become a really good astrologer, study history. Become a historian because it'll really give you the, the tools and techniques for understanding sort of political and world astrology because they're all interwoven with another. So she is a person who doesn't see poetry and say astrology as separate, but would have seen these things as a holistic understanding of knowledge. That to be lettered, to be educated, means to uh, to respect knowledge and learning in all its varied forms, and also see how these are interwoven together. To see the poetry of the stars, the science of the stars, the judgment of the stars, the history of the stars, all would have been part of her learning. Right, brilliant. And and you mentioned Dorotheus, and that's great because that ties us back into that. Because you're right, book three of Dorotheus is on the length of life technique and on this very technique that we're talking about. So that's crucial. So um, she ends up potentially having this successful prediction. Her father's power is restored to some extent, and some of hers is restored. And she goes on to live the rest of her life. Um, Fifty years after her husband died, she eventually passes away in September of 884. And there is some story towards the end of her life where one of the later caliphs had moved sort of the center of power away from Baghdad, and she stayed in Baghdad in her little palace. Um, but then eventually a later caliph wanted to move back to Baghdad, uh, but they didn't own any more lands there anymore somehow. So she was asked if somehow she would give up her home to allow the caliph to to relocate back to Baghdad somewhere later in her life. Yeah, she. But they eventually, as a result of of a sort of crisis, a military crisis over uh, these soldiers, sort of imported mercenaries become very very powerful, and there's tensions with soldiers in Baghdad. They move to Samarra, which is a little bit 
further away. Um, and Samar actually is um, where most of the horoscopes are cast. This is something that people who are recreating the horoscopes often forget. Um, they keep setting it for Baghdad, but mm. it's actually in Samara. For the majority of the horoscopes we have, with the exception of like the foundation of Baghdad, obviously, the majority of the horoscopes are in Samara. All of them are because they the caliphate ends up being there with its court astrologers. When they return back, they do ask her if they can return to the palace. Um, she remains sort of committed to the institution of the caliphate. She protects the successor of her husband, right? Not only does she restore her father, but she saves the caliph. She, you know, if the caliph dies, her father could have been restored that way. But she she intervenes to save the caliph. And later on, it seems like she continues to remain favorable and is willing to acquiesce. But also as a reminder that she remains an important figure even later in her life, that she may possibly have given advice to caliphs, that they may have sought her out, um, not regularly, but she would have kind of transformed into the wise woman role, that she would have been the person that would, ah, she's connected to the Naubachs. She is the descendant of the Naubachs. She is connected to Mamun. So she's the direct lineage of the foundation of Baghdad itself. I'm thinking of her in this like elder stateswoman type role yeah. at this point later in her life. Think about her as like the like the daughter of someone who founded DC, right? right. Of like she wa would, George Washington or something. Yeah, like George Washington's ancestor. So she has a very important connection here, and so people continue to you know see her in sort of respectful terms. It's not easy, right? A woman living in a patriarchal society. We shouldn't paint a rosy picture by any means. But this is a woman who who enjoyed a great deal of success even after the death of her husband, and enjoyed that success based off of her own merits. Yeah, a lot of potentially the, potentially yeah. stayed relevant partially due to her skill in astrology in some way. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the sort of biographical accounts focus on the marriage, but the actuality is that her later influence comes predominantly because of her learning, because she is a learned woman who is who is educated, who's smart, who's wise, and who's able to give counsel to other caliphs. And so much so that Ibn Ta'us talks about her saving the caliph with the prediction. Okay. So um to sort of bring this full circle and sort of wrap it up, I mean it's sort of it's like with other legends involving astrologers earlier, like Thrasilus, for example, and the famous legends surrounding him and Tiberius, where Tiberius is like said to be in the habit of interviewing astrologers and having them read his birth chart and then once they get done like saying great things he turns the tables and asks them now what do you see in your birth chart and um if they didn't say something to the effect of like i'm in imminent danger then they were thrown off a cliff and that was the end of the interview and thrasilus famously when asked that question supposedly breaks into a cold sweat and says i'm in imminent danger and then Tiberius turns around and says, "You're hired." Basically, um, you know, with legends like that, we don't know for sure about the authenticity of it or how much is just a legend versus how much it's it's actually based in something real. But with this, while we somewhat run into a similar ground about the specifics, there's a lot more going here because of Baron's family background in astrology, the place of astrology, the education she would have had, the role she had in society, and all sorts of other things, the connections she would have had to other astrologers that make some core part of this a little bit more, more plausible or, or make it makes it seem like there's some kernel of truth that's more, more compelling here than we might think 
about some of these other legends that sometimes involve astrologers, I feel like. Do you feel that way or where are you at with this? Yeah, I think it's very likely. I think the detail here is specific. That cut, mentioning the cut, they could have said, oh, she predicted the death of the, of, of the caliph. But by going into the techniques, this is an indication that this likely either happened or there was some some semblance of factualness to this. We don't know what level it is. The reality is that predictions are often associated with prestige, right? So it's a way of, of adding prestige onto people. But I'm also one of those historians that I'm not committed to the idea that we need to disabuse people of their beliefs. If people believe that Bauran made a prediction about the Khalif's death and intervened, that in of itself is significant. That in of itself is important. It tells us something. It tells us something about Bauran's character. It tells us something about medieval Islamic societies. And I'm also a big believer in, in trying to recreate that sense of wonder to a certain extent. These aren't superstitious people. These are people with a great sense of wonder around their world, right? And that there's something beautiful in that. And so it is important to treat these legends uh, on their own. But I do believe there is, I don't know whether she really predicted the Khalif's death, but we do know that she, these techniques likely would have been used by her. The fact they're attributed to her indicates that she probably made regular predictions. This was probably the most famous of hers because she was able to save the Khalifs. That mention of the Khat, the mention of the astrolabe, the mention of, of the wooden object, those are very specific. Usually when a prophecy is made or when a prophecy is used as a sort of discursive tool or a tactic of building prestige for a person, it's more vague. So-and-so predicted the end of this empire. And the empire came crashing down, right? When they get into the details of it, what they're trying to do is demonstrate the science behind it. They're trying to demonstrate the technique. They're going, this is what happened and this is how it happened. And so that is, I think, what makes Bauron's uh, legend uh, particularly significant. You mentioned Thrasyllus. Did you ever, have you ever seen I, Claudius, the TV series? No, I haven't, but I heard he plays a role in that. Is he actually, is it prominent or? He, he's a very minor role, but I think you would enjoy it. There's this fascinating place because Tiberius was neurotic about his astrologers, right? Very nervous and anxious about them. There's right. this great scene in the, in the, in the uh, series. You've got to check it out. BBC, really good, where he's often Capri. He's kind of uh, in isolation. And every day, Thrasyllus has been making these predictions and he's sitting with the horoscope. He's, Any day now, you're going to get good news. You're going to get good, good news. And Thrasyllus comes home one day and Tiberius is sitting at his table and he goes, what are you doing? He goes, I'm reading your horoscope. And it tells me that the messenger that's about to show up is going to determine your life. Because if he doesn't have good news, I'm going to throw you off of this island. Wow. And he, he Thrasyllus looks, he goes, I, I promise you it's good news. Turns out that the messenger is like, come back to Rome. You have been named emperor. So right. it works out for him. Yeah, well, and that's actually based on one of the actual legends or stories, which is that there was supposedly like a boat off in the distance, and there's a question put to Thrasyllus of what message does this um, contain, and then he says it's very positive and it's predicting great things for you or something positive like that. And there's spe I speculated that for something like that, he may have cast like an inceptional chart for that moment because there are actually rules in the electional tradition that survive, maybe from Dorotheus about. Casting um, a chart for the moment a letter is received in order to see what it is about before you've even opened it or something like that. Yeah, the same the same technique is still found in the Islamic tradition, determining the contents of a message, but also the hidden element of it. So you check the twelfth part 
of of the message to see what if there's an underlying like secret message or if there's a secret intention or there's some type of plot behind it and that comes from Dorotheus just directly from Dorotheus right so so the important part about this or part of the important point is like legends like this were able to circulate because people in that time saw there was a, a certain amount of plausibility surrounding it for some reason and surrounding the figure of Baron mm-hmm. and that's probably what's most important and probably does point to whatever the greater truth is underlying it because of her family lineage of astrologers and her learning and her position in society and everything else. And so there's that's one of the reasons why we feel a little bit more comfortable yeah. doing this episode and talking about it in that way and giving her or restoring in some sense her rightful sort of part in history um, in having this discussion. So thanks a lot for for doing this with me today. I think Absolutely. this was a lot of fun and I, I can't believe how much we covered, but I think we've given a pretty good overview of, of the whole story. Thank you for having me. I hope everyone found it interesting, our foray into Bauran and the fun, fun world of medieval Islamic astrology. Yeah, which is a huge, sprawling thing that you're doing amazing work on. And Thank so you. this is something you talk about regularly in your podcast, right? Yeah, so I, I talk quite a bit about medieval Islamic astrology. For example, uh, the last one we recreated um, – Abu Mashar's techniques in in the podcast, what he would have used about what the solar revolution actually looked like, what the twelfth part was in in the role of of the whole horoscope, how you had to look at it, the helage, um, but also uh, translations. I'm not a translator in the sense that I just don't have the patience or the time. I'm tenure track, so I'm I've got to put out books and articles, and I don't have the time to write translations, which take a decade. To do, mm, right. but I am small translation, so I translated uh, Abu Mashar and Al Buni's uh, natal significations for the lunar mansions. Wow! So nice. the lunar mansions are one weird element of Islamic astrology that just disappears in the medieval Latin tradition. They just don't pay attention to it at all. But like the Nakshanata, the, the tradition from India, where the lunar mansion is in your birth chart is interpreted to mean something for your life. So it's not just electional and talismanic work. But for example, you know, if you're in the twelfth mansion, or if you're in the sixth mansion, if you're Alturia or whatever, it means that you'll grow up noble, that you'll have a broken bone at sixteen, that you'll find marriage at twenty-five. Like a very specific delineation. So I just translated those. So there'll be a mix of translations and a mix of of recreation of methods on the podcast. Nice. That's amazing. And that's what yeah, that's one of the elements that came in from India, the lunar mansions, and then was merged with the Whatever Greek horoscopic tradition in the eighth and ninth centuries. So that's primarily available on your page on it's patreon.com slash head on history, right? Yep. Yep. Available there. And I'll probably publish it somewhere at some point. I'm a big believer in accessibility. So at some point, it'll end up either in a Twitter thread or it'll end up on some place that's not paywalled, I promise, at some point. Okay, and you do pretty much like weekly Twitter threads on different topics, often on astrology and other related things um, through your Twitter account, right? I do Wednesday threads. They were uh, started about a year ago, and they weirdly got popular, and people seemed to like them. But it was it was really fundamentally a desire to make things accessible. I, I think my deepest frustrations with the academy is that things are hidden behind the the ivory tower and there's some really cool things that people are doing on the history of astrology the history of these areas and I'm I'm trying to make it as accessible as possible and also just interesting right this this history is not boring history by any means or at least I don't think so i mean brother turning on brother astrologers beefing with one another 
shade thrown in texts, predictions of death. Yeah, I mean, this is all interesting stuff, and this is one of the things, like, for me, um, since I was a teenager, astrology became the gateway into learning about ancient history and learning about philosophy and learning about ancient mathematics and ancient cultures and different things like this because there's real interesting stories and stuff uh, that are also sometimes tied into the astrology and the astrology techniques and being able to look up charts for like the chart of Baghdad or the possible birth charts of Baran or different things like that are all fascinating things that make history and everything else come alive in a way that I don't think you could do in a way that's at least different and, and is more appealing and accessible to people. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. This is why in my classes, we have we do a whole section on working with astrolabes and casting horoscopes, and they absolutely love it. They they love it being able to be like, okay, what does my ascendant mean, and what is that? What does it mean if my lunar mansion is here, and what if what can we examine the horoscope of of the city of Shiraz, and what does that tell us about Shiraz and the philosophy there? What actually happens in Shiraz? So this it is an interesting way to look at history, and I think it makes it more real. We go from people who are sort of dead abstract figures to living people who have personalities, who have horoscopes, who have complicated lives, who have intellectual passions and interests, and who go on to become powerful queens of astrology themselves. Yeah. Well, and, and sometimes the most interesting thing is that life is not so, even though there are major differences, and we have to recognize that in ancient times versus modern culture, right. p- fundamentally, like people's lives and the core components of their lives and, and sometimes personalities. There's so many similar dynamics that once yeah. you get to know this, you realize that these were real people that just happened to live a thousand years ago in different circumstances, yeah. but sometimes responded to things in ways that are very relatable and very understandable, just like we do today. Yeah, absolutely. It's a way of making them real and recognizing their hopes were our hopes, their anxieties were an- our anxieties, the things they were worried about whether it was getting married or finding bay or or you know getting that paycheck those were their anxieties mm-hmm. very much real and so the human condition time changes but the human condition remains the same you know certain things are clearly different modern capitalism i think makes uh, hyper individualism is very different from the pre-modern world they're thinking more communally than we are mm. but if you read some of their writings, they're worried about the exact same things we're worried about. The questions we're asking today, astrologically, historically, philosophically, are the same questions they were asking a thousand years ago. And there is something comforting about that. There's something where you're able to kind of pick up a text and read about a person a thousand years ago, and it's like you're having a conversation with them, and you're resonating and completely meshing on like, oh yeah, I'm totally stressed about those exams that I've got to take too. So right. too was this person in the ninth century. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons astrology and that system of horoscopic astrology has remained relevant because there was yeah. something at the core of it that did speak to the core concerns of one's everyday life through th- constructs such as like the twelve houses and the different mm-hmm. areas of life that those Absolutely. relate to that are still very much the same today. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for doing this. I really appreciate it. This is amazing. I hope everybody enjoyed it, and you sh- they should check out your Twitter and your Patreon. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to Mat- Matthias Del Carmine for the cover art for this el- episode, just because I loved Gorgeous. that illustration. Um, thank you for for putting this together to me. I look forward to seeing more of your work in the future and, and different things that you produce over the course of your career. Um, And yeah, I guess that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you again next time.
Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, Issa Sabah, Morgan McKinsey, and Jake Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwak.net. The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co. Also, the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org. The Astral Gold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.